Universal acceptance is like a bit of a myth. When we're defining universal acceptance of songs, it's like sometimes we're just talking about a big marketing budget. Maybe I miscalculated, like this might be my own hubris and how it is that I'm calculating what greatness looks like and how it is that it's, that it's diluted or augmented. But in my mind, like a person gets as much recognition as they deserve in a way because there's a special kind of recognition that's given to somebody where you think that they're heavily underrated. There's a beauty to that. Like, that is not to be denied because there's something beautiful and free about them being underrated because if they're properly rated, everyone's going to their shows and not everyone's taste. Welcome back to the Jacob Kelly interview series. This is the show for deep conversations about art, creativity, and culture. Today on the show, we are joined by Kubla. And Kubla is a full-time musician based in Toronto, Canada, who recently released his debut album, Close to the Sun, which is a phenomenal album that I highly recommend you go and listen to. I myself have listened to it many times since it's been released. And the reason I asked Kubla to come on the show is twofold. One, I just think he's an incredibly talented musician, and I know he's a more contemporary guest than some of the previous guests we've had on this show, but I don't want this podcast to just be reminiscent of the past of art, creativity, and culture. I want it to also be a celebration, appreciation for the present of those things, and a look towards the future as well. So when I see someone who's talented like Kubla, that's more contemporary, I'm going to ask them to come on the podcast. And the other reason why I asked him to come on the show was because he's just an incredibly deep thinker. So I know we'd be able to have a really fascinating interview. And some of the things that we talked about in that interview, which ended up being the longest one I've ever recorded, include identity, which is an interesting conversation to get into with Kubla because Kubla is not his real name. His real name is Kieran, and he intentionally chose the name Kubla to have a separate identity for him as a performer. So we dive into that, we dive into the dilution of greatness, his creative process, and so much more. And before we get into today's episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next interview. And if you want even more from me, you can subscribe to my newsletter where I'll send out long read essays about what it means to do art well. And now without further ado, I am very excited to present to you my interview with Kubla. I used to do these deep dives and like I would try to jam every little fact yeah, 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 yeah. And then I realized like, it didn't work. Yeah, yeah. But it know? doesn't it doesn't work when you're just like, here's trivia. No, you're like, <laughs> it's like if I were to ask you about like 945 Pembroke Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it doesn't have any skill. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean it kind of does a little bit. Does it? Definitely. In what way? Um in the way that that's where I produced changes in my bedroom there. That was like really where Kubla was born, like as an entity. And it came out of the fact that it was like the first real place that I'd like spent time that wasn't at my parents' house. So it's kind of like symbolic independence in some sense. So not a bad question. I don't know how you found the address. <laughs> I also know your landlord's name was Todd. Yeah, Todd's great. Yeah. So Todd Doherty, I think. Yeah, yeah. Todd at Toddco.ca, dude. <laughs> um, but you said how like that was the beginnings of like Kubla. Yeah. But really, like, and I know you I've listened to your other interviews. Uh -huh. And so you you call yourself a this is a song farmer. Mm -hmm. Only we plant seeds for yeah, song yeah, ideas. Yeah, yeah. But technically, I guess you could say that the idea of Kubla was planted earlier. Yeah. In grade 11 lit? Yeah, some grade 12 lit? <laughs> yeah. But I stick it. Yeah, because it was Kubla Khan, right? It was the poem? Yeah. And I'm interested about this idea of identity and Kubla as the identity. Mm -hmm. Why did you feel that it was important to create a separate identity from Kieran to be a performer? I'd say... The, there are two reasons that come to my head immediately. The first reason is that as a performer, 
do want to create some separation between who you are and who other people perceive you as, which is really important because I think a lot about identity as an idea. And I think we live in an age where people are very interested in identity, like like as an idea and, and how it pertains to them and all that. Before, I feel like there are ages where people just take traditional notions of idea of identity and they just adopt them and they just don't think about it. And there's a way in which that's a much more simple way of living. And I could do that with my artistic career. And I find a lot of people do that, but um, it came from a lot of different inspirations, which are like some artists that I really look up to, like Daniel Caesar or um, Daniel Caesar or Tingsek or uh, Anderson Pack or did tons, tons of names, right? That they're not using their real name. They're using like what they view as kind of like a take on their real name, maybe uh, at least something that gives them like some mythos, you know, like some mythological stance. And so that's kind of what I was looking for with my name. And I experimented with a few ideas, but I ended up going with Kubla because I just like the sound of it. And the second reason is because of that, like I like the sound of it and I also like the way it resonates in meaning. And my name being Kieran, which I don't care that people know, like people can call me Kieran if they want to. And to me, it's, it stands to be a testament for like how great the name Kubla is that even when I introduce myself as Kieran, I never ask anyone to call me Kubla. I never introduce myself as Kubla. Um, and I almost never tell people that I'm Kubla. People either find out and then they end up calling me Kubla or they just call me Kubla because they like the way Kubla sounds. And to me, that says that there's something that they see when, until they get to know me as an actual person, that they actually prefer to see the performer. And it really tells me where people are at when that's the case. And as I'm experimenting with my identity as a performer, as an artist, and I'm experimenting with how people see me, then I get to see how people react to that. And to me, that's a really beautiful process because, and, and even being open with that process is nice because I don't know who's going to listen to this, but it's probably going to be some like really lovely fan of my music who like really likes to dig deep on artists and I'm that kind of person too. And um, I think there's an aspect to that that we all do performatively in our own lives, like whether it's introducing ourselves as our nickname or uh, how it is that we insist on being called in general and how that kind of like performative aspect of identity is actually a really key part of what identity kind of is. So to me, Kubla is the kind of performance entity that allows me to not just be an ego allows me to kind of separate from it. And also Kieran, I feel like people expect Irish music and both my parents are Irish musicians so it's it, or Celtic musicians. So it's kind of, you know, I, I didn't want to be playing kind of like soulful jazz-based music and then be named Kieran. It just like, it didn't work for me. That's it. How is Kieran the same as Kubla and how is he different from Kubla? Um, like in meaning or in, in identity? In identity. Um, so... I would say Kieran is different in that Kieran is like a very complex and nuanced person, like speaking about myself weirdly in the third person, but like I'm a very nuanced person. I'm kind of a shit disturber. I have weird ideas about the world that aren't like, I'm not trying to be reactionary or to be, um, but I'm a bit against the grain. And it's honestly something that I'm, I'm very insecure about sharing because I'm not agreeable, but I am definitely very sensitive. And so for me to have my my outlook scrutinized and crystallized into the way that people perceive things when they only get the image of somebody 
wouldn't work for me. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't work for me to be identified, uh, like aligned politically, for instance, like, or aligned, um, uh, even culturally it, it, it I kind of just want, want to be an entity that people can just associate with the music and all the associations that the music creates and the kind of my taste, my aesthetic, my, my likes and my ideas and my relationships, I can kind of keep to myself and allow it to be mine. Um, so that's, I think where Kublai and Kieran differ is that Kieran's a lot more protective of his life and Kubla is very open and, and confident, you know, in, in what he thinks, but is a much more simple and unnuanced version. <laughs> As a performer, I think you have to be open and confident too, right? Totally. Like it's, and is that a conscious shift for you? Like I know it was a Beyonce thing who had to give herself the identity of Sasha yes, Pierce. Sasha Pierce yeah. And I interviewed Fred Mandel, who is a session and touring. I've told you about him. Session tour musician um, was with Alice Cooper in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And he said that was kind of a persona. Totally. Um, with Lady Gaga. He worked with, on the studio with her. And he said when he was in the studio, he was working with Stephanie. But when she stepped on stage, she's Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. And for you, is it you're not Kubla until you step on stage? Or is it in Kubla when you're interacting with people who view you as Kubla? Like how do you different how you toggle back and forth between those two pieces of your identity at this time i'm still wrestling with it but i think it is on stage like on stage i say i'm kubla when i'm shaking someone's hand i say i'm Karen. so it doesn't matter who it is if it's a fan or whatever like if they're willing to come up to me and say hello my, my automatic reaction is hey i'm Karen. it's never hand kubla so like because of that um to me, Kubla is just the name for the music. And however people identify it, like if they ident- really identify with my band and they're like, this band, then that's great. I kind of see that as a failure on my part in branding because to me, it should be telling the story of an individual rather than a group. But part of it is telling the story of an individual within the context of groups um, because those contexts are always put together with human beings. So yeah, so I think that I'm Kubla on stage because it kind of encapsulates the whole entity. And then Kieran is just the me, but also Kubla captures the idea of the individual and not the actual individual himself. Kubla is for the people. Yeah. Kieran is for the person. Yeah. Like when you shake hands, exactly. it's like a more intimate thing. Yeah, precisely. You get to be with that person one-on-one. And when they get to know you as Kieran, it's like a different experience for them. Like from the context of a fan. Yeah. Like someone comes to your show and they see you on stage as Kubla and you step off, you introduce yourself as Kieran. Like that's got to be feel much more intimate to totally. what I said. And maybe, maybe it's overwhelmingly intimate for them. You know, like that's something that I acknowledge too, is that like sometimes the introduction doesn't even happen because that's just how they know me. So if they're at my show and they've seen me before and they really, they, they like know me as that, I get to know their name. They typically don't ask for mine and because that's how they know me and that's great. And, you know, they're going to introduce me to their friends as Kubla. Like, like when, when they like my music and they want to show people the music because that's how you know, it's the beautiful thing about music is that people really identify with and they want to share. Um, and that is adequate for me identifying with that. I don't think I have to work hard at all to make Kubla an entity. I think Kubla just exists. I can say when people see me perform for the first time, I would say I'm Kubla, you know, it's easy. And yeah, you're totally right. Kubla is for the people and Kieran's for the person. Has Kubla always existed? No. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say there's an aspect of myself that I discovered when I was really young that 
I'm able to, I'm able to like really truly be a fool in front of people. And I think that that is the core of what makes me able to learn how to be a performer and to, to manifest that is that it started with the fact that I'm just not, that there's just a part of me that I can turn on. That's just not, not afraid of getting up in front of people and feel the failure and feel the negative emotions. Like I'm not just like up there flying high all the time. I'm like, it's, it's battle, but for some reason I enjoy it. And for some reason that's always been a thing. Like ever since I was a little kid, I was like, I can remember when I was in grade three, we were doing a production of Robin Hood through the whole school. And it was like a, it was kind of like a school play presentation for the parents and each class did like a scene from like this kind of like rudimentary written play of Robin Hood. And we got to pick our own parts. And I was like, I was like the chubbiest kid in class. And they told us pick our own parts. I was the first to be picked. And I was like, I'm Robin Hood immediately. And everyone was mad because they were like, you they were like, you do not embody Robin Hood. And the teacher was obviously like, kids, stop being so mean. Like, here is Robin Hood. <laughs> he got the thing. And um, looking back on the video, it's it's really funny because that was the first time I was both extremely self-conscious of the fact that I was like a chubby kid and that everyone like, you know, I'd, I'd gotten kind of like individual little teases, but when everyone is like unanimously like, you're Friar Tuck. <laughs> you're like, you're like, oh, I see where I stand here. And that really uh, set the tone, I think, in a lot of ways for how it is that I embodied myself physically in trying my best to like fit the role of what I believe is worthy of being in front of people and going through that process and living my life in that way. And at the same time, being unafraid to try new things and to be a bit of a fool and to be able to look back on it and go like, oh yeah, like I made a mistake and I felt that mistake in the moment and and you know, I'm going to do my best to be present and not think about it, but have a mechanism by which I can like. So I think that's what Kubla is, is Kubla is that thing that I have inside me where I can just get in front of people and express myself. Earlier in that answer, you were saying how you can like turn on that ability. Yeah. When you say you turn it on, is it like a conscious decision to turn it on? Or is it more so a product of the environment you're in that naturally turns that switch on? I, I think it's one of the things that I'm quite conscious of as to when I'm performing and when I'm not. There's like an energy that, that turns up, turns up. There's like a a feeling because if I'm playing at, if I'm playing background music at like a hotel lobby, which has like been my job for many years, um, part of my job for many years, then I'll sit there and I don't really feel like Kubla, like because I'm kind of just here and focusing on myself and my own music. It's when I'm actively interfacing with other people, and I'm really conscious of that. That I'm that like that little bit of playfulness and and like enthusiasm comes out, and I feel really at home in that space. Like I feel safe there. Um, I think that's fundamentally what it is: is that it's scary, but it still feels safe. And I think that that's kind of where Kubla turns on, and I think it's a kind of conscious decision of like knowing that the feeling is the feeling and I can kind of choose what the feeling is. So I always like to say, like I did some acting when I was like 21 and that experience really taught me to like really interact with that. And the, the kind of little, little quibble that I came up with or maybe picked up from somewhere, maybe it was someone told me, I forget, is that nervousness and excitement are the exact same feeling. Um, it's just up to you which one you feel. So it can sound crazy because maybe you're nervous for like a dental surgery, 
But I think if you choose that you're excited instead, you, your brain can actually come up with a lot of very interesting reasons why it's actually a positive experience and why it is that you're excited to go for it instead of nervous and withdrawn from it. And so, like I experienced that with a with a wisdom tooth extra- extraction a while ago, where I was super scared. I'd never had dental surgery where I had one where they took out water and that was fine, but they were taking out three. They're like pretty heavily impacted and stuff. And I was like, I'm really excited to see how this person does this because they're claiming that it's not going to be that unpleasant. And instead of being nervous, like there was an energy, but I just had to figure out where to channel it. So that's kind of where that came from. That was uh, Romeo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Playing Romeo? Yeah, yeah. Channeling that energy. How can you do that? Because sometimes it almost feels like the nervousness can overpower the intent to want it to be excitement. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's such a strong feeling of nervousness that I can't find a way to make it excitement. Yep. How? Can you shake that? Or is that something else you have to embrace? I think you have to embrace the, you like, you have to feel the feeling for the feeling itself and not associate with the reasons for the feeling. So like, if you're nervous for something, you probably think you're nervous for a reason. But the, the reality is that there is a stimulus, but the stimulus isn't actually causing the the like the like direction of the feeling, the valence of the feeling, like whether it's excitement or whether it's nervousness, whether it's positive emotion or negative emotion. What guides that is more you just being able to interact with the feeling of just like being activated. Just like something is activating your parasympathetic nervous system or your nervous sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight. And you have to just not rationalize it because that's what I think. Like, I think it's just, that's what presence is. It's just like not associating with your inner monologue and your inner rationalizations and kind of taking some separation from that, realizing that there's a deeper level to your consciousness than just that inner monologue that's constantly going and telling you things. And to separate yourself from that, see how it's useful, see when it's useful, and then to allow it to generate things that maybe point in a more positive direction. Because once you decide this more positive direction, then that nervousness starts to dissipate. You still feel the activation. Like I'm not saying that you go from excited to calm. I don't know how to do that. But I know how to go from nervous to excited. And I typically fluctuate back and forth. But as long as I'm not focused on, as long as I'm focused on dissociating from those reasons of nervousness, it usually just tilts towards excitement. And then when I'm performing or when I'm going to a doctor's appointment or when I'm going on a first date or when I'm doing anything like that, or like seeing someone who I haven't seen in a long time is like sometimes a hard thing for me because sometimes there's like, I don't know whether there's bad feelings there. Like I have no idea. And acknowledging that, you know, whether it's just like acknowledging that it's just a challenge, you know, it makes it exciting in, in a certain way. And, and some things are just really hard when they activate you to go from negative to positive. But, um, yeah, that experience I think is what guides that kind of performance process for me. That disassociation is interesting. Yeah, because I was have you had to start with why with Simon Sinek? No, but I've, I've heard a lot of interviews with him about it. There's a con that he talks about in the book how your the part of your brain that makes decisions and the part of your brain that speaks and understands languages are separate. Really? So you make decisions and you aren't actually fully able to explain why. Totally. And so that's, to me, it's a very similar thing where you're disassociating, where it's like trying to turn that monologue off. Is it your brain trying to rationalize the feelings it can't actually explain? Exactly. And th- that's how you stick to feelings is through crystallizing them through through language. Like if I say I'm, and, and sometimes that's good for just making it present. Like if 
I told you that I feel nervous right now, that actually makes it like the, my nervousness is now here. But if I'm just telling myself that I'm nervous, then it's like just plays over and over in my head. Because I think you're exactly right. I, I like to visualize it like if, like if I were like a like an animal version of a human that didn't know any language, what would my what would that look like? What, what would that self uh, monologue look like? Like it would probably be so much more rudimentary, right? Like you'd probably just have like bad, 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 or like some association image in your head, right? I think it's because of language and because language is such an inherent part of us, part of us that the more linguistically adept that you are and the smarter that you are, like I think it's a somewhat known fact, psychologically speaking, that the smarter somebody is, it's not that they're more elastic. It's actually that they're way harder to change the minds of. They will be way better at telling you why they're right than accepting why they're wrong. So that's all that really intelligence and linguistic ability does. And so I think the only way around that is if you acknowledge that within yourself and, and do your best to do the work to dissociate from that linguistic ability and as much as you can and to create for yourself like presence. Is there anywhere in your personal life right now where you know you're wrong, but you're kind of not letting yourself accept that fact? Oh, wow. What a damn crazy question. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. Uh, 100%. I, I think that there's a lot of, I kind of like to call it, um, there's a lot of like opinions that I hold pragmatically. And I know that they're like just useful to me. I know that they're useful for reasons that are interpersonal, like whether it's my opinion about how other people think or how other people work. Um, my opinions on how the world works in general, um, my ideas about, you know, even how like music functions and how my art functions, it's like, I, I constantly have to really do the work to sit down and open up my brain compassionately. I really avoid, try to avoid conversations where there would be any reason for people to, like get mad at me for being wrong. Cause I think it's the wrong way to approach it. Like, I think you have to approach people with the utmost compassion when you're dealing with telling them that they're they they have like a like a wrong or like self-damaging or damaging view about something because sometimes something's just useful. Like if I think that um I don't know, let's say that I have opinions about uh what it is to be a man or something like that. Sometimes it's not that bad. Like sometimes what it means to be a man is like to be honorable and respectful and and loyal and diligent and or uh, like courageous and all these things. But if I start making statements like what it means to be a man is like to have a beard or something like that, like just things that are kind of like exclusionary and damaging and pointless. I'm sure I have opinions that are like that, but I try to like do my best to sit down and open those up and really write about what I consider be, to be virtuous and, and stay away from ideas about the world that are just like not within my wheelhouse or are not useful to me. So, um, or even might be damaging to me. So this is a really good question. I think that for me, if we're speaking artistically, um, I'd say my, probably my most toxic trait for my thoughts that are actually quite damaging to me is that sometimes think that thinking about things are better than doing them. And Fine. it means that like, if I'm at practice, I'll like be on a long walk and be like thinking about what I'm going to practice. 
and we're even talking about it. Like lately I've been really avoiding talking about anything that I plan to do because it feels like doing it, but it's not doing it. So like if somebody asked me what my plans are, I noticed this like sneaky little way in which it sets things back and how that really damages the process because it makes me get ahead of myself instead of just like choosing to do the Stephen Pressfield thing, you know, just to sit down and do the work and then just like let it be until the next day, you know? And I find myself in a really good rhythm when I just allow myself to be in that space and not talk about it. And that's, and only talk about it when it's actually beneficial and educational to the people, you know? Mm. And when I feel actually very versed in it. Otherwise it's useless. So yeah. It's like that, um, is it Charlie Munger maybe who says, you shouldn't hold an opinion unless you can argue the counter side of your opinion better than you can your own opinion. Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that's totally true. Like for me, I think that goes really well with my personality. Like I, I think I'm definitely a very dialectical type of person. Like I really enjoy, I definitely have values, but I really enjoy to take a look at those values from a position that is devil's advocate which is, it used to be really, you know, I wasn't the worst like it definitely wasn't that guy at the party that was like full devil's advocate and total like insensitive dick, but definitely I would get excited about the idea of like talking to some somebody about a idea that I don't hold um, maybe agreeably. And then uh, like I think at uh, our friend Cheyenne's party that we were at the other day, um, I was talking to uh, a, a girl who was there and we were talking about Myers-Briggs. And I happen to know a lot about Myers-Briggs, like a ton about Myers-Briggs. And we were just talking about it and she was so enthusiastic and clearly like really had like a like great use from it. Like she really found a lot of catharsis within the the tool and used it in a lot of cool ways. And I, I like that. And then another friend came up and we're talking about Myers-Briggs and, um, and she was like, oh, you guys are talking about Myers-Briggs? Did you actually believe in that, that stuff? And I was like, not really. <laughs> and the girl I was talking to was like, what the fuck? Like, you don't believe in it and yet you like talk about it and know a lot about it. I do the same thing with astrology. You know, like I, I just think it's fun to like engage with it. Not to say I don't believe in it. I just choose to be completely agnostic about it. It's like if it's useful to me, it's true enough to, for me to talk about it and for me to like use it as an explanatory mechanism. But unless it holds that truth, then I, I just like to be nebulous about it and, and try to view it instead of like the dichotomy and just view it as all as one whole. Like it is true in certain situations and isn't in others. So I would try to be. I want to circle back to you avoiding the work. Yeah. And I'd rather talk about the work and think about the work. What are you thinking and talking about in those situations? Like what do you think, what does the, doing the work actually look like and what are you talking about when you're talking about it? I think I'm, I'm taught what, what I'm sorry. Can you rephrase that question? Yeah. So what exact, what does the work look like for you that you would rather talk about than do? Oh yeah. Like it's usually like big picture stuff where like, I'll like to talk about like the strategy or the process of something rather than like digging in and like just allowing myself to exist in a certain process. Like I'll be working up in a certain way and then I'll be like, that way is the way. And then I'll realize that, that I'm doing that. And then that will actually be a good moment for me to, to acknowledge that I actually need to mix it up a bit. Like with recording music, I've lately been, been on a very like anti-DAW kick 
which is uh, DAWs are digital audio workstations for people who don't know. And digital audio workstations are like Ableton or Logic, or it's like a recording software. You, you like plug in a microphone, it's like a whole complex array. And I've been preferring my phone uh, voice memos just as like a canvas. Just it makes it a lot easier for me to like put things on an even playing level to be able to listen to things more easily. And like, even if I record something into Ableton, I'll like play it on my studio monitors and record it on my phone just so I can like have it in a much more like roomy format. It isn't so like harsh and in my ears. I find that I can really engage with the idea a lot better that way. But at the same time, I really acknowledge that like songs that I've written that have done quite well, like move on, were done completely in a DAW and completely me recording a beat or recording an idea and then going completely from from zero to finish in that concept. So it's more about realizing that the big picture is actually me incorporating all of those things together and not me saying that, ah, screw DAWs, we're on voice memos now because it's cooler and more streamlined, a little bit more like a, like vagabondy. But I, it, when I talk about it like that, it kind of helps me if I notice it the right way to acknowledge that I'm actually limiting myself and limiting my ideas. And that's where talking about it can kind of help counteract the thinking because I can go like, oh, actually, I should reframe this and like look deeper into this. Um, and when it comes to thinking, it's just what I tend to ruminate on, especially when it comes to like what I think I should do, these secret little sneaky shoulds that come into my life. Like I should promote my my music. I should, um, uh, I should play a show this time or do this thing. You know, whatever it might be artistically that I should do. But I'm not really interacting with what's just right in front of me and how it is that I can just interact with my inspiration and allow my discipline to kind of like follow my inspiration rather than trying to get my inspiration to follow my discipline and. Quite frankly, what I'm talking about me struggling with, I actually don't struggle with that much because when you look at my body of work and my output, I'm actually very good about managing that. But the struggle definitely definitely does still exist within me and definitely still have to interact with that. Where I was originally going with that question, mm -hmm. or what I was more trying to allude to, is intentional practice. Because obviously like the, the easy examples like with basketball, if I get better at free throws, you just shoot a bunch of free throws. Yeah. As a creative, that's a little bit more... I feel it's a little bit harder to do intentional practice. So how do you think about intentionally practicing as a musician? Because I feel like you can so often get caught up in like writing the next song, getting around, doing the next gig, but like what does intentional practice look like for you? Like how do you hone the basics consistently? I think it's about set, like making the setting of the intention of the practice part of the practice. And sometimes that can be really passive. Like you, I think that you have to do it actively sometimes in order to practice doing the, the thing. But I think the aim is to make it passive. I'm pretty good about that. Like, I'm pretty good about sitting down and being like, okay, last night's gig, I was doing solos and I was going for all these lines that I didn't quite understand the actual harmonic structure of and how it is that they fit under my fingers. And it might not be as important as writing songs, but it's something that I'm just really interested in right now. So I'm just going to work on that. Other times, it's more about... Now I'm thinking about what I was practicing today. It was funny. Funny little intrusive thought. Um, other times it's about really intentionally sitting down and being like, Hey, like what needs to be done and how can I be proactive about it? For me, that always comes down to like songwriting. Cause I just see that as the most important part of me telling my story. 
and me kind of like actively making things that people like. Um, other times it's like setting an, an intention for it. Like sometimes you can't set an intention that's too complex. And sometimes you can. Like for me, I can sit down and be like, I'm going to write a samba that's like a love song about this. And that will work. Other times it's like something that I haven't explored enough yet. So I'll be like, I'm going to write a song that kind of like uses this feel from this song and see how it is that I interpret that. And that's just my intention for that time. If I sit down and just write a song and don't do anything about it, sometimes the intention is just inside of me. Like I've been thinking about this thing lately or feeling this thing lately uh, or going through this thing lately. Other times I just write about something I've written about before, you know, write some generic love song or something. But I think no matter what, it does just come down to the most important thing is just sitting down, is just getting on the court and shooting the free throws. It's not that if you don't have the right intention that you shouldn't sit down and do it. It's like when it comes to getting the reps in and getting the practice and just getting your brain in that zone, like I think that with the free throw example, like if you were to, uh, if you were to post up and just like no thought about technique, just like freaking throw and throw. I think it's probably better to shoot 10 shots where you film them, maybe 30 shots where you film them. Notice the deep tendencies that you have and then address those because some two is too little, like two sh shots is too little. Um, 100 is too much. It's just too much to go through. But if you get to the sweet spot where you can see the tendencies and then allow that to be the case with practicing guitar, for instance, I try to do something well 10 times and then see where it is that I'm struggling. So I'll film myself doing it quite a few times, look back on the thing, see how it sounds, see what it is that I need to work on or slow down or chop up. And then I'll sit down with it for as long as it takes for me to like get it to a place where I feel happier with it. And then I'm exhausted. With writing, you said it's kind of like the place you try to practice the most, probably just by sitting down and writing. Yeah. Sometimes there's intention. Sometimes it's you're going through something, which I think the creative process an important part of the creative process is actually processing the emotions you're feeling. Yeah. And another thing you said sometimes is write a generic love song. But with when it comes to the album with Close to the Sun, mm -hmm. there's none of those generic love songs on there. No. Every single song has meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. At what point did you feel it was time to put that album together? Was it that you had enough songs that had meaning behind them? Was it that something you felt like you should be doing? And he was like, I need an album out there. The body of work needs to be larger for people. How did you decide it was time to write the album? The big picture was definitely driven by the should, where I knew in my heart of hearts that I just needed a body of work out there. But that didn't guide the small picture. Like, I wasn't there sitting, sitting there going, like, these songs need to be like this. This needs to be this way. I just took a collection of songs that I already had collected and, and made and followed a certain theme and allowed that to be a body of work that I was proud of both performing, showing people, uh, you know, discussing. Because because to me, they're kind of like my philosophical, um, emotional essays in a funny way, right? Or poems. Like, I feel an equal part that I'm a songwriter. I'm a composer and a poet. Like, that's where it comes to being a songwriter. And... Poets have a lot to say, like both just in like dialect, dialectical conversation and in, um, in their poetry. Like, do you know who John O'Donohue is? No. 
a friend of mine uh, who's a great men's coach, um, he, Devin Walker, he, at first on a ses- session, suggested this podcast to me with John O'Donohue, who's an Irish poet. He just had such beautiful ways of talking about the world, but fundamentally it wasn't his art form. You know, he, he just like, he just is, his art form was like practice for him to talk about the world. And so what he put out there was like what he could allow people to view and that helps people understand the way he thinks. And that's kind of the way, the same way that I view my songs. And even still, it's not like they're just like totally serious. It's like there's a bit of playfulness to them. There's like an air of something that I still can't quite explain. Like I'm not using them as like, oh, I'd love to explain the meaning behind the song. I'm kind of discovering them myself, but it helps me have a starting place, you know? And then when I'm picking the songs for the album, it's just the songs that I feel the most excited about. Like what I show to people and I, like part of the process is showing the songs to people and having them be like, wow, that's a beautiful song. And and doing so in such a way that's natural, not like, hey, can I sit down and show you the song? It's like with The Farmer, um, which is a track on the album, I sat, we were like having a fire in my backyard and I just brought my acoustic guitar out and was just like playing a couple songs. And then I played that song. And then everyone in th- at the fire was like, that is like one of the most beautiful songs that I've heard in a long time. And I was like, that is how I feel about it. But like, I need a little bit of confirmation because I could just have my head on my own ass. And so that was like a really important part of what the process demands is just like quality control um, in a way that's like really impressionistic and totally up to me. But at the same time, it is is driven by what I feel like are stories that that really imbue the song with a lot of meaning for me. And I have to be careful about it because, you know, I want to really experiment with how it is that I conduct the process. And this is another example of me talking about the process in a way that kind of crystallizes it. But at the same time, it puts out in the open, delivers air through it. And so, yeah, so for selections, selection with the songs on my album, I really just like selected from a bunch of mature, well-developed songs that I performed a few times, recorded some of them that I didn't choose, like fully went to the studio and did it and then heard it back and felt how it felt and was like, this isn't the feeling. And just was at peace with that, like no sunk cost buyers as much, as little as I could. And then, um, and then, yeah, and then just having a lot of fun. Like I took the collection of songs and then I chose the album concept because I just noticed what the album concept was. I was just like, oh, I'm talking about me moving to a big city from a small city and how much hubris it took to do that and how I am like in the process of being self-aware about how like my confidence is getting out of control sometimes and how it lands me in trouble and how that's probably just going to be a recurring theme throughout my whole life and how other people probably struggle with that too and how it is that that's just a natural byproduct of what everyone aims to have which is like self-confidence and a, a path and a mission and it's a beautiful thing but when people are going through that, they feel struggle and danger. And that's part of the brand of, of Kubla in a sense. Yeah. I want to unpack that a little bit more. Yeah. And the name of the album, there's a specific line I wrote down here Great. that I wanted to, because the name of the album is is Close to the Sun. Yeah. And hold on, I'm trying to switch a few pages. Where did I write this down? So I Googled what Don't Fly Too Close to the Sun is on Google. Mm-hmm. And the... 
the definition Google gave me is it is a reference to Icarus, which is another song on the album. Really. But it's a reference to Icarus, recklessness and divine, defiance of limitation. Yeah. And when I read the album title, it's close to the sun. Mm-hmm. It's not don't fly too close to the sun. No. So to me, when I hear that, it's not a warning. It's a statement. Yeah. I'm both being reckless, but I'm also not letting people's expectations or limitations define me. Totally. And so I want to separate that. In what way are you currently being reckless? And in what way are you currently not allowing the limitations by other people to define you? Oh, haha. That's such a good question, man. Um, I'm being reckless with my with how it is that I'm trying to approach my goals. I want to have a family one day. I want to meet a partner who like really complements my life and and vice versa. I want to live a life that I find deeply fulfilling in the present, as well as has a I have, having a deep understanding of what that looks like in the future. And I think that reco- that experimentation with that requires like a clear defiance of the boundaries that people place typically, and some degree of danger. Like, um, if I give the example of my career, a lot of people are like, with a musician, they're like, the path is get a record deal, um, get distribution. Like, like, do now we do TikToks. Now we get playlisted on Spotify. Used to be like we get submitted to blogs. This is what us people do. And I think that's all dumb. And those rules were created were created arbitrarily based on very valid observations about what works for people, but is merely using a uh, Rene Girardian idea, which I've been really into lately. It's purely mimetic. It's just people copying other people because they that's how they extract their source of value. And so recklessness comes with kind of like separating yourself from the pack in that way considering what is truly useful, which is like, it's going to have mistakes. There's going to be definite things that you think are going to pan out really well, but you miscalculated. Like I played a show at Longboat Hall and I thought it was going to be the, like my expectations were sky high, like too high, way too high. And quite frankly, when I actually reflect on it, it was a massive, massive success. And my expectations were just really poorly set. And I wasn't massively disappointed because I, I typically don't try to let those emotions like like guide me and I try not to get angry. I will feel the negative emotion, but I try not to like blame it on somebody or like allow that to, to spit out. But it definitely was like after that show was over and I, you know, I paid the piper and everything was done. I was just like, oh my God, the things I would have done to like, oh my goodness, the, the different date I would have chosen, the different venue I would have chosen, the different um, uh, the different lineup that I would have chosen, the the flow of show I would have chosen just to just to get to that feeling that I was expecting. And the reality was when I actually think about the way the show went and talk to my friends about it is they're like, that show was the most successful show you've ever done because you had like all the right things there, all the right place pieces in order to like get to the next step that you need to get to, whatever that looks like, just opens a lot of doors for you. And for me, it's realizing that because I had set my own boundary and because I wasn't relying on the boundaries of other people, that those boundaries were hilariously unrealistic and hilariously based on my own premonition of what success is defined as. And that to me is what flying too close to the sun looks like. It isn't actually like, 
that you are at in actual danger. It's just that you don't fulfill your own expectations and that you kind of miscalculate what's happening because you take on too much yourself. And so for me, it's like, I, my experience with that is defined by how it is that I wrestle with the, the, the accident of the expectations that I set. And then me coming back down to earth, so to speak, is chilling out and setting my expectations properly and being happy with that. Like I'm doing a pay what you can residency at Tapestry right now. My goal is not to make money. It's to open myself to new fans, to take risks in front of people and to see how it is that they react and feel about the way in which we're interacting as a, as a performing entity. And to me, that is like a really beautiful process um, that I don't need to get paid for. If I do, it's great. It's pay what you can. Like I tell people, I'm like, I want to pay the people behind me. I don't say I want to get money. I say we get paid through this. And so they give money. Be, and I think it's good for them because if they come and see the show and they just stumbled in and they liked it, if they gave money, they're more likely to remember, you know, that they feel invested. So I don't really care about that. I just care about my band. Like last night we played the residency. I paid my band a hundred bucks each. I made 30 bucks and I'm great with it because my expectations are not sky high. So to me, that's what flying too close to the sun is and um, flying close to the sun is. And I think that the reason that I didn't put the word too or made it like a, like a warning is because part of the process of acting out the story is not knowing exactly how the story is turning out. So like Icarus wasn't like, I'm going to fly too close to the sun. Icarus was like, I'm going to fly close to the sun. And so that's kind of how I, how I feel is necessary about my journey as an artist is that in order for me to find a new way, and I'm going to get what I want. Um, it just won't happen in the time that I think it might. It might actually, it might happen sooner. Like I didn't expect Move On to blow up. I had no idea that would happen. But, and and there are many things that I don't expect. In fact, the more I clear my expectations, the better. But sometimes I need expectations in order to just like organize myself. You know, so it's it's literally just those things juggled with it. And then what was the other side of the question? Yes. What limitations are you not letting define you? Oh, like status, like um, <clears throat> status, like relationship expectations, um, my friends, like how it is that I choose my friends or how it is that I choose to treat other people or view societal narratives that like, I think we live in a big mess of societal narratives right now that don't work well with each other. And um, when it comes to issues around identity, you know, I just choose to be the most foundational I can humanly be and just like observe people as people uh, rather than observing them as, you know, their occupations or how it is that they choose to identify themselves. I, I like to like, it's really fun to identify people with their like animalism, you know, like it's really fun to identify with them as what temperature they're at right now. Where like, um, like if I walk up to somebody and I'm like, you look like a, a, an occupational therapist, that's way less fun than walking up to somebody and be like, you look like you're in a really comfortable temperature right now. You know, like when you go up to somebody and you interact with them, they're actually very happy to identify with that. They're like happy to identify with their hunger, with their happiness and their social life, like with their relationships with their family, because those are all such human things, right? And so to me, those are the limitations, because I think a lot of people, when they have those conversations with other people or they're viewing their fans, they're viewing them as like their outward identities, like like the, the performative things that they have to do, like whether it's like being a man or a woman or or 
or whatever gender they choose or however it is that they interact with um, their occupation or their social expectations or what other people are doing around them. So I just try to make my art in such a way that is like purely identifying with what the experience of the individual is as much as I can, which is really about my own introspection. It's like me dissociating from my performative identities and just interacting with how I'm actually feeling. And you find that there's actually still a lot there. Like I have relationships, like what, whether I like it or not, I don't identify with somebody who has relationships. I have relationships. So I write about those relationships. Like losing faith is about my, my relationship with my best friend. Everyone has a best friend. Like everyone, whether they call them their best friend or whether they interact with them that way, sometimes it's a one way relationship, you know, but like everyone who's healthy as a human being has relationships and, or strives to. And, um, you know, everyone who has relationships goes through breakups, move on is about that. The farmers about that interaction, um, green eyes is about that interaction and there's a positivity to it and there's a negativity to it. And that's just what I'm trying to wrestle with as Kubla. Do you try and more so than the story itself to get the emotions across? Cause I feel like that's something that in order to make art universal, mm -hmm. it's not about the specific stories. It's about to your point, those emotions that everybody feels. Everyone has a best friend. Everyone has probably felt that fraying with their best friend. Everyone has gone through a breakup. Like no matter how much money you have in the bank, mm -hmm. you could have a million dollars in the bank, you could have zero dollars in the bank. Everyone at some point has been sad about a breakup so they can identify with that. Totally. They might not be able to identify with your specific breakup story, but that emotion is what they resonate. I totally agree. And I just think the story, the story has to be there. Like I think, cause I think, I think people require like maybe not a reason that they can identify with, but at least. They want a degree of plausibility. For you to be able to properly communicate that emotion, you have to have experienced it yourself. Yeah. You can't just be like, I want to write about this. So I'm going to write about that. It won't come across in the way that someone will be able to resonate with exactly. it. You yourself haven't actually felt Precisely. It. And as you as you recount the events, you're kind of proving to them in some sense that that is what you, you or like the character is experiencing. I think that that's a really important distinction too. That's I've been thought about it that way. That's really cool because the... Um, like to me as a person, if I just say, oh yeah, I've experienced breakup. It's not that people don't believe me. It's just that they can't really contextualize it. So it's like, they can't really go like, oh, well we can align. Like, you know, like you'll understand my story and all of this detail. It's like, I have to be like, well, like we lived together for a, for a while. And then, and then like, you know, we had these experiences and then we just had this rift and that, that was just it. And um, you even have to be more outright. And that's why I think music does a really good job is because when you're singing about something that you really mean, it's really easy to write words that flow in a way that is like deeply true. And then you just feel good about performing it. Like I just feel good about performing songs that are true to me. I don't feel good about performing songs that aren't true to me. And it's funny because like when I just like the way the song sounds, it's not like I review my own story. Like um, I'm not like actively doing that. I'm just... I just use that as the indication that that's how I feel. And even if it doesn't exactly align with the with the complete context of the experience, that's kind of part of what it means to be a person is that the words can be twisted in such a way that can kind of show a nice Venn diagram. It's kind of why I really like to play Black American music is because I think what came out of that era of music that happened like 50 years ago was like the telling of all of these emotions that came from like such a unique and universal human struggle which is just being alive making a living doing a thing but that also was just like deeply contextualized with it within this like 
you know, identity structure that people could really like latch onto that wasn't guided by an industry. I think that's primarily the big thing is that black American music wasn't guided by the kind of like common pop music industry that really kind of will castrate music and prevent it from really investing in the full emotion. So like when I heard, um, um, a change is going to come by Sam Cooke, for instance, the song, like most people, but that is like one of the most successful ballads of all time and one of the most effective because it just fucking hits people when, you know, I was born by the, by the river in a little tent. Um, I was born by the river in a little tent and uh, I've been like that river. I've been running. I'm going to get these lyrics wrong. We might have to cut this ever since. It's been a long long time coming but i know change gonna come that is like a universal experience it's obviously talking about racial segregation in in america but everyone has that feeling of like desperately wanting things to get better and only having the faith to allow it to do so and so just because of that emotion just because that emotion is there it feels good to sing it and so that's how i feel about my own songs too it's just like because that emotion is there, it feels good to sing it. And because I'm telling my own story, it also comes with that degree of plausibility if people need that extra step to go. How do you think about capturing those emotions with noises? Like I am so non-musically inclined mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. So the idea of being able to feel something and then find the right sounds mm -hmm. that represent that emotion in such a way that it resonates with an audience totally is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, and so how do you think about that? How do you think about capturing that emotion with song? Well, I definitely come from a unique background in that way. Like, I view musicians like sorcerers, like in a funny way, because you're li like literally vibrating air to create like a psychological imprint on people. So it's magic. It's like this crazy magic that you and you kind of have to learn spells. You have to learn like. The kind of like incantation style of the magic you have to learn the the flow and the elements that make it function and that experience of knowing what works and what doesn't is a process that in some ways i'm adept at because i've, I've learned from copying greats who do it really well um so i just have tools in the toolkit and Understanding it is not an objective process. Like some people are amazing at just conveying sadness through their voice and an acoustic guitar. And other people are incredible at writing a score for an orchestra that like per per perfectly captures the tension in a horror movie, you know? And those are the same things in, in the way that they're both conveying an emotion that is like direct and identifiable. In the detail, it's completely up to the person. Like some people, when they hear that sad song, they might go like, this sad song makes me feel uh, a little bit of melancholy. And other people might be like, oh, well, I feel a little bit of despair, you know? But fundamentally, they're like, it's painting maybe a broad brush. Um, you know, with with the horror movie, it might be uh, the tension is just real tension. People usually feel that emotion really unanimously. Unanimously, and I think the more unanimously the emotion is felt throughout the space, the more you get that like feeling of resonance. You know, so I think dance music is so successful 
um, always because something's really good at making people dance and just makes people dance and move that everyone's resonating with each other. They're like using the, the music as like a medium to get together and, and because they might be present in the same space, but they might not be able to have a conversation because they just don't speak the same language. Um, they might not be able to have a, um, you know, they might not be able to be physically in contact because it's too uncomfortable or it's just not what they're interested in. They need to use the music as like a medium to allow themselves to be like involved in the same kind of like, like cosmic energy and spiritual energy that surrounds them. And I think that because the original question was, um, what was the original question? Like what you what you use as tools to convey? Oh yeah, how do you how do you use sound to convey specific emotions? Yeah, I think it's just learning the tools. I think we just have discovered tools over thousands and thousands of years of making music. Whether it came from like finding like a nice sturdy piece of plant that could like vibrate against a gourd or something or like find a gourd that like resonated at a frequency and just like people who like spent a lot of time just being fascinated by the process of making noise and then um they chose to create patterns that aligned with certain emotions and they just discovered that and i think the discovery of that is like a really honest experience because you need to, i think as a musician as you get older and and you know a lot more you can like just kind of rely on old tricks and not try to pick up new ones but i think part of keeping the game fresh is about like finding new purposes for things that you know exist or finding different ways to sharpen those tools or different ways to like depends what kind of artist you are like whether you want a completely novel tool and like i i used to make uh really groovy house music and now i'm gonna be like a cinematic composer or um whatever it might be, whether it's just like, I'm just going to make another really great jazz album, or I'm just going to make another really great pop record. Like some people are just on different journeys in far, insofar as what they find enjoyable. That just depends on their personality. But yeah, that's that's what it, it's like to create emotions with noise is to notice what emotions that those noises make for you and for other people and to just kind of throw it in your tool belt. And then when the time comes to see how it comes out, like that's what I do when I write songs. I'm just like, these it's like these tools are laid out i know how to do them when i perform them in front of people i just see how it lands and see if i'm good enough to do that you know like as a performer it's kind of i want to experiment in the future with writing songs more for other people because i want to see like i can't do with my voice what like a really good female singer can do with their voice like there's something really special about the belt of a, of a really good female singer that just fucking just hits the human ear with just extreme force and so to create those moments i can't necessarily do that myself i can do it in like almost kind of a way where it's like surprising how like powerful my falsetto can be but if i really write for like a real powerhouse performer i wonder how good that can be i think it's kind of like a comedian writing jokes for other uh for other people to say like i listened to a john mulaney the john mulaney hot ones recently where he said that one of the most gratifying things that he can do as a comedian still is to write a joke that someone else says and then watch it happen. Because whether it bombs or it does really well, he's just like, if it bombs, it's funny. Because he's just like, wow, that was funny that like I thought that would work and it didn't work. 
And I don't do the same as a musician, but when it works, you're like, oh, hell yeah. And you tell the person you're watching next to you, like, I did that. And and I kind of feel the same way about songs where it's like, when somebody puts my song on at a party or something like that, like, I don't tell anyone. I'm just watching people vibe. And they might not even be interacting with it, but even if it just like doesn't disrupt the energy, if they're if it's in a collection of really good songs, they're just like, this is another really good song. Then I'm just like, hell yeah, that's great. I know that that is successfully conveying that emotion. And so that's all I'm going for, essentially, is, is just like being more intentional. Um, and that's just what it's like to make noise, make emotional resonance. And in that setting of a party where someone put your song on, you don't tell anyone, even just watching how they react subconsciously, right? Totally. Like the subconscious reaction to art is important and not talked about enough. Yeah. And so even if they don't actively like stop their conversation, they're like, wow, who, what's this? <laughs> like, you know, like there might even just like their vibe might shift slightly. Totally. Just because of what's going on in the background, they don't even realize it's happening. 100%. And I think you have to like really just disengage and just kind of observe because you can project all kinds of things. Like you can, you can be like, oh, that person winced. Like that must be bad. You know? <laughs> and so, yeah. When it comes to discovery, mm -hmm. that is part of the magic to me. Like for me as someone, like as a writer, like I like to write essays and I you do as well. Mm -hmm. Like when I find the right, like, phrasing of something where like mm. I don't see it coming but it just like happens and it clicks and it's like the, I call it like, not trying to be too precise to leave room for magic on the day mm. and part of that magic is just the discovery of how things fall together without you intending for them to happen totally how do you leave room for that in your music how do you leave room for discovery where it's like you have these tools you know what all these tools do but you want to find something new at the same time I think it's about making it like a playful dance like like I love the free throw analogy even though I suck at basketball but just like the, the pure repetitiousness of it. Some people are amazing at just being like really repetitious and like very robotic. Personally, I'm pretty good at that. Like I'm pretty good at that in most aspects of my life, but mostly in, in how they pertain to like my body, like working out or or like even just like practicing guitar, practicing vocals. I'm pretty good with that. But what I find the most fun just in my personality is just being able to like express ideas as they come to me and as they're connected. And I can trick myself into finding a process that's really useful for me to be really fun just by making it a process of me like spitballing and just like brainstorming, coming with new ideas back and forth and just like building on something and, and trying to like understand it and make it happen. And um, so the way that I do that, like with songwriting, for instance, um, is that I'll just sit down and like improvise ideas. I'll just sit down with a guitar and not have any preconceived notion, just improvise little ideas and, and something will just come to me or I'll just do something completely unrelated. Uh, like if I'm cleaning my house or if I'm going for a walk, just have an access to something to record myself so that I'm not thinking about it. It's just a fun little playful dance that I'm just getting my time in for the amount of time that, that it matters. And th there's a time where it matters to be like really intense and focused and intentional. And that's really fun too, as long as you're not burning yourself out. If you're spending way too long doing it, um, it's a problem. Like I think that people spend a ridiculous amount of time finishing songs when they really don't need to. Like they're making it, they might be making it marginally better, but they really need to separate into shorter chunks. If they're not getting it right, they just need to try for like an hour. Step back. Don't spend 20 hours in the studio. Like, like give yourself a life, you know, because you're going to just make the same stuff that sounds the same or sounds the same as other things. So all you're doing is copying stuff. I think that that's where um, people get lost when they when they get used to working for like a corporate environment because they just get addicted to their routines and to the grooves that are kind of like like drawn in their brain 
and they're like, this is my routine, this is what I do. And then that eventually makes it so they, they become inflexible because they don't do enough nothing. They don't do they they don't work like a Naval Ravikant says work like a lion, which I really like, like work like a predator. Predators are working an hour and eight. Like they go, they get their kill, they chill. Prey animals are working twenty four seven because they're always watching their back and always scared and always worrying about whether or not they're gonna get um whether they're they're gonna get killed or not, right? And that's their job. Their job is like to escape predators. On a total side note, something that I like to imagine is like if you like chase a squirrel, like if you're in the park, weird thing to do, obviously. Like you don't go to the park to chase squirrels, but say you do, um, or say you watch a dog chasing a squirrel. Imagine how good it must feel for the squirrel to successfully get away from a predator. Like they probably get a ton of serotonin. They're probably like, Yes, I lived. But the thing is, is that that experience is not what humans are really thrive on. What humans thrive on is the experience, I think, of successfully executing quickly and efficiently, and then spending the rest of the time exploring and just like walking around, having fun. You don't want to be sprinting 24 hours a day. You just want to, you want to walk around, chill out, sprint for 10 minutes. That's the ideal life. So with me, it's like, I just make sure that all of my idea farming, my idea seeds are not me like forcing out a song in a day. I did that for like a while. A lot of great songs came out of it, but I found the process to be like incredibly draining. And I found that I could write just as good songs if I just spent time like getting out the seed, putting it somewhere, and then expressing that seed in um, in a different environment and making that very controlled and making the execution like really well planned out. And I'm still experimenting. Like these words are not law, but I just think that those psychological ideas like really contribute to how it is that I enjoy the process of exploring and making making things new. That's interesting because good art still came out of the the forced way of creating. Totally. And so how do you kind of balance that with succumbing to the resistance? I think it's by realizing what actually made those things successful is was the feeling that came out of them because sometimes when you're in a forced environment like if you just if like for me the the work is making sure that like i'm diligent about recording my ideas and going through them and going over them and knowing that there's something that needs to be get done um and making sure that i'm working at it every day and make sure that there is a sprint that i'm on every day uh just to make sure i'm not on it for very long and for me, those ideas that turned out really well were ideas that came from like a really simple seed and they just flowed. And it was just really fun to make from start to finish. And it maybe took me a couple hours. Like it was never like a super long process. It was when I was like, I was like backtracking and like trying to figure out better ways of doing things and like sourcing different ways of outsourcing the, uh, the process to other people that I, in like a really rushed fashion because I was like, okay, I'm going to make a song a day. I'm going to make a video for that song every day. I'm going to mix it so that it's good enough to kind of present to people. Um, it's just by luck that some of those were really fun to make and therefore had like a, a ton of really positive association for me, which is huge. And because of that, I could really easily pick and then finish and put on an album. And that was a fun process. Like Move On literally happened because I was sitting... Uh, I was getting photographed by a, a girl who came to my house during the pandemic to just like photograph me in my bedroom studio. And she was like, how do you make a song? 
Like, how does that happen? And I was just like, I'll, I'll demonstrate. You just take like a drum break. Like lately I've just been taking a drum break. I've been recording like a thing over it like this, like this. You could put something like that over it. And it literally was just like a demonstration. And then I had the beat for the song. And then I just returned to that beat one day and then I just heard melody over it. And I was just like, oh, that's a fucking cool melody. I'm going to make, this is going to be my video today. And that was really fun and easy. And so that's kind of how I reconcile it because I think getting addicted to the feeling that resistance comes from, um, comes from a feeling of being genuinely burned out is false. And I have to let go of that in order to really experience what true resistance is, which is the constant urge to like reevaluate the process and like reevaluate the system by which you get it done. Like instead of just sitting down and doing the work, you're like, today I'm going to like restructure my desk. And it's like, oh, that's resistance, you know? And to know that sometimes resistance doesn't come in the form of like a negative emotion. Sometimes it comes in the form of like a positive emotion pulling you in another direction. I want to make sure I understand so what you're saying is the resistance is almost you you convincing yourself there are other important things that need to happen before you can create. Exactly. And sometimes you're not feeling the urge to create is because you're processing what's going on. Totally. And when you actually put yourself in a position where like pen hits paper or fingers are typing or you have a guitar in your hand, that as long as you have like a nice routine for a starting place, like whether it's like doing a journal, you know, like for essaying, I usually just like like to write questions. Like I just write questions all the time. And then when I see the question as a prompt, I'm like, that is a relevant question that I asked and now I'm going to answer it. That works for me every time. Um, with writing a song, it's just like, if I sit down with a drum break and playing my guitar, I always come up with an idea without fail. When it comes to, and th th with a bunch of different tools, like sometimes if I'm just like sitting down with a really nice sounding acoustic guitar, I decide today I'm going to screw around with effects, uh, and make a new make new guitar patches. Every time I'm just gonna write something. It's just what's gonna happen. I'm gonna be inspired by the sonic palette. I'm just gonna write something. And so because of that, I just make sure that I'm not too driven toward the novelty. Like I'm not like driven to like, oh, I'm gonna go buy a new toy from Long McQuaid and then I'm gonna start. It's like, no, I'm gonna start and then I'm gonna go buy a new toy. It's like this is more important. That might be kind of an urge an urge, you know, that's why they say urgent because it's an urge. You need to ignore the urges and do what's important. So we realized that's, that's a quote from the war of art that I really like, which is, uh, the role of an artist is to acknowledge what is urgent and what is important and to do what's important first. I like that. I need to revisit that. I read that book before I really identified as an artist. Right. As a creative person. So I never even finished it. Right. So I think now like where I am in my life now, I need to revisit that book. It's so good. I'm leading you somewhere with this question, but maybe it ends up going nowhere. Okay. Have you noticed that your quote unquote best performing songs, or we'll say most resonant songs with the audience, yeah. have come from those sessions where they come quickly within a couple hours of the song really forms and you're not slaving away trying to make it come together? I think all the songs that I choose to release are like that. And I think the reason, because that is what I kind of mentioned before, which is that I have like a positive association with them in the process of making them. And I also really understand them. Like, I think when I say something that comes with a lot of fluency and not a ton of resistance, then that's because I really know it. And that's because I really feel it. And that's because I don't really have to do a lot of research in order to do it. Like I'm, I'm not writing an example of something. I'm writing something that I really believe. Same thing goes with essays. Like, 
when I read an essay that just flows out of me. It's because I don't realize that I knew a lot about this idea, that I like know about this idea. When I read an essay where it's like I, I have to constantly like go between executing to information processing, it's a really good research pro project, but it, it means that there's a deeper question to be found in there. And so I just like let those essays exist on my computer. That's why I don't like, I'm not like a writer. That's why I don't like release essays because I don't want to have to, I don't want to have to force it yet. Like it's, it's the same thing with music. Like I'm sure if I keep dialing in my process such that I can make a framework that allows me to like post a great demo every day, that's awesome. But like, I, I'd rather not be beholden to that. I'd rather just like really be along for the ride, have my process, let it be mine, you know, from, for a lot of things. And then just give people the creme de la creme, the stuff that rises to the top, you know. I want to put a pin in the framework for a second because I want to come back to that. Yeah. But originally where I was leading with that question is because I think in order for music to be like widely accepted, mm -hmm. it has to be universal enough that everyone can enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I think those songs that come out of easy sessions, because they are able to be conceived easily, they're able to be consumed easily as well. I agree with that. I would say that there's some nuance to it because like tastes are a thing. Mm -hmm. So like universal acceptance is like a bit of a myth. Like uh, in my world, bands like Starkey Puppy and Wolfpack are like insanely famous and successful. But the reality is that they only appeal to like less than 1% of the population. And and that's enough. Like that's enough. And, and, and the acknowledgement of that with myself too is that like my success as well in the iteration that I found right now even though it is, I definitely have bigger plans and bigger things that I, I'll need more money and more uh, audience and more all kinds of things for, where I'm at right now is enough. Like I'm, I'm a, I'm deemed by the market to be, to, to put my time into this in the way that I do, which is wonderful. So when we, def when we're defining universal acceptance of songs, it's like, sometimes we're just talking about a big marketing budget occasionally and sometimes the songs become totally poop like totally are a constipated process like it's people like pouring over something it's like some producer who's like on somebody's ass and that person is like who, who? like i know people who are in the the like la music industry and some of those songs are like mixed and recorded with so much stress behind them just because there's like a label obligation and like a project manager and that's just how they're choosing to get stuff done the entire k-pop industry makes amazing music and i would say that the conditions under which those people work can be fun probably for a lot of those people like i can't speak for them but because they're beholden to a huge structure and such a big team of people that each individual person within that space has an obligation and because of that there's no way of escaping that some of them are going to be like this thing is really stressing me the hell out have you watched jake Tran's video about k-pop no i would watch it cool he makes it sound not fun for anybody no that's exactly it and then that's the thing when you have a process that's like really has a lot of oversight to it is that people are just like you just have like an amalgamation of like people who are just kind of forced to do the thing that they're good at is deemed by the project manager and the project manager arranges it in such a way that suits them. And I think that that can amount to really beautiful things. It's kind of like, like I would say the pyramids are beautiful, but as far as I know, they were built by slaves. 
You know what I mean? But whoever conceived them probably had like some divine inspiration that was like, oh, wow, this is beautiful and fun and amazing. And they probably like poured over it for hours and hours and hours just effortlessly. Um, but that's kind of the thing is, is I guess I'd, <laughs> I guess my music is ethically made. <laughs> <laughs> Where some music isn't really ethically made. I'm not pointing any fingers. I, I'm not pointing fingers at K-pop. I would love to be involved in K-pop. You know, uh, like, because I actually really like the music and I'm sure I could contribute to something, but maybe I wouldn't work within K-pop because I just wouldn't allow myself to be treated in a certain way. Or maybe the role that I would occupy wouldn't get treated in that way. Like I would be like a, I'd be like a visiting architect on the project. It wouldn't be like a, you know, like a employee situation. Like, why didn't you do it right? Kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak ill of any direct industry but I can say that there are definite processes that have stress as a component in them and they work for that reason. Mm -hmm. But I think I think you're right that from the foundation of it, it has to come from like a playful place and it has to come from a place where you're like laughing about it and are genuinely excited about it rather than made nervous about it, you know? You mentioned how, we'll come back to frameworks. I haven't forgot about that pin, but you mentioned how there are certain groups that are like, Huge deal for you and people in your space, but not a lot of people know them. Mm -hmm. And this has like been an idea that's been like on my mind a lot lately in past people. I mentioned Fred Mendel. He has this idea that greatness has been diluted um, because there's a guitar player he knows named Philip Sace. Mm -hmm. He says he's the greatest guitar player. He's yeah, he's amazing. Ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like no one knows. I know him. Yeah. Yeah. Of course you do, but like, because right. you, you got, from my understanding, are a student of the game. Yeah. Right. But not a lot of people know Philip. And, but I spoke with this guy, Mike. Mike Hill, who worked in film, and he was saying how, like, eventually, like, the great stuff will always rise to the top. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know if that's true. And because, I because to your point, sometimes the best stuff just has a bigger marketing budget. Yeah. And I'm kind of just thinking aloud, but I don't necessarily have a question formulated here, but it's more, it's like, how does that land with you? Do you think that greatness has been diluted? And what do you think actually allows stuff to surface to the top? Well, I think that greatness is is in the eye of the beholder like not not to say it's totally subjective because i think that that philip says is, is like an amazing guitar player and like that can be objectified but he's like an amazing guitar player in like the Jimi hendrix sense you know where like he's not amazing in the joe pass sense joe pass is like a really amazing good jazz guitar player um they're not the same they wouldn't be able to play the same things it's not an objective scale so like greatness is an idea like they're great athletes because they they hold certain statistics and are able to get the job done. They're executors. Athletes are executors. There's definitely a creative component to it where they're essentially their job is to like with their coaches create the executor. So they're they're like like uh, when you think of um, who was Mike Tyson's coach? You remember that guy's name? Not off the top of my head. Um, doesn't matter. The, the point is, is that he, him and Mike Tyson created Mike Tyson. Like, and like there was a collaborative process. So like he was the creative mind behind Mike Tyson. He, uh, and he's credited with it, you know, like where like he found him, he gave him a purpose. He's, he's talked about in that way. Mike Tyson is still known as the, the executor. But like, if you look at Michael Jordan, he is a, he is on the court. He is just executing, purely an executor. When it comes to being a musician, when you're on stage, you're exploring, like you're not just executing. Unless you're in classical music, you are in a process of like feeling the vibes almost just as much as everyone else. You have to be careful not to be too indulgent. So you don't 
step outside of your zone and make too many mistakes because you want to make sure you're not interrupting that process. So in that way you are an executor. But like when we're talking about greatness, I think what the the, the truth of the matter, the way I, I kind of disagree with with um what's his name Howie? Fred Mandel. Fred Mandel. Yeah. Howie, Howie Mandel is the way I thought about it. <laughs> the way I kind of disagree with Fred Mandel is that greatness was heavily augmented by an industry in the past. Like the, the industry that produced Michael Jackson was a insane amplifier that amplified beyond the proportions of human recognition. It's just the fact that you had such a big megaphone announcing something so great that that's just what allowed it. And it was mainly a business, like, like Michael ja Jackson was mostly a great business, more than he was a great artist, in my opinion. Like he was a great artist. But in my opinion, there are more interesting songwriters, more more captivating performers um, that exist and might perform in places like Vegas or uh, places like LA or, you know, might, might be choreographers or might be singer choreographers or whatever they might be, but they just don't necessarily exist within the context of an industry. But the fact is that they might inspire someone who ends up becoming someone who is as good as Michael Jackson. Like, um, um, there's a, there, there are comedians that inspire like great comedians, for instance, and people, no one knows about them because those, those, they, they were arguably just as great, but they just didn't have the industry that could give them the amplification they need. And the same thing goes for music where, um, a really big example that I can think of is, you know, how, Obviously, Stevie Wonder was a hugely impactful artist that was very commercially successful. But people don't actually acknowledge when they listen to music, especially in like my genre, how he is like the biggest megastar that has ever existed because he stands behind so much music. Like, so, like he's the godfather of complex and interesting harmony being relevant in pop music, whether you hear it in Ariana Grande or in Drake or in uh, The Weeknd or in... Um, you know, like a Mac Miller tune where like Jay Dilla has been so impactful on the pop, on pop music indirectly. But in, in so far as his own success, it came through like very niche avenues, just what he had access to, which was like a Detroit and New York scene. So he was working with like Erica Badu and Lauren Hill and D'Angelo and Tribe Called Quest and um, it, um, uh, Slum Village. Um, Mad Lib, like a bunch of different artists that existed within his context, but weren't, you know, were not the Michael Jacksons of the time, but arguably they are also great. It just matters what the context in which it's delivered. And maybe I miscalculate it. Like this might be my own hubris and how it is that I'm calculating what greatness looks like and how it is that it's, that it's diluted or augmented. But in my mind, like a person gets as much recognition as they deserve in in a way like because if a person there's a special kind of recognition that's given to somebody where you think that they're heavily underrated that there's a beauty to that like that is not to be denied because there's something beautifully free about them being underrated because if they're properly rated everyone's going to their shows and not everyone has taste imagine being in a room of like 200 people and you know, all of those people have great taste instead of just are jumping on a bandwagon. 
that's a great feeling. That's the feeling of discovering a new artist that I think is like so fulfilling is that when you step into that room and that person's kind of underground, which is kind of the beauty of this day and age, you know that all of those people, like they found them, they brought their friends, they were like, like you have a bunch of amazing curators of taste. And because of that, it's a great audience. And the best shows that I've ever been to have been of artists that like, if I told, in fact, like, do you know Emily King? No. Alan Stone? Um, you know Tom Minch? Those are some of the best shows I've ever seen because everyone there was, it's not that they were a musician, it's that they were like a explorer of taste of what exists out in the world. And it wasn't just given to them on a spoon, like this is music. To me, the dilution of greatness is, I don't know, like in my opinion, it's like a necessary part of the process because what you end up having is artists that maybe were even formerly huge, like John Mayer. Instance. John Mayer is obviously like a bit of a household name, but he hasn't remained in the pop canon. Like people very much shows they like went like mask room. Like, I'm not gonna listen to any of his stuff. I don't care. No matter where he resurges, like he still like, you know, packs arenas and stuff, but most people still, you know, wouldn't necessarily care. And it's just because he sticks to a very specific artistic brand that he cares about and cares a lot less about appealing to the kind of mimetic bigger success like people the imitative kind of success that people really strongly associate with and because of that when people hear one of his songs they have a much stronger reaction because they have a much more personal relationship with it you know like i like to cover gravity at my shows like it's one of the songs that without fail every time i cover it people are like oh my god yes I love this song. As, I think it's just because it speaks to like a very specific, um, I think it speaks to a very specific taste that like people who like the music that I make really like. So it just worked great, you know, and I love playing the song. So, um, so for that reason, artists that are of that caliber, when you're at their shows, like when they do something really cool, people holler, you know, they are having a great time. Like, I'm sure every show that Philip Says plays, he is, when he plays like a sick guitar line, like instead of people being like, I don't really know what's going on, but I heard this guy's great, so I'm at a show. They're like, wow, that is a, that is amazing guitar. I know guitar playing, that's amazing guitar playing. And that's a beautiful thing. And like, if people are just going for the art, the best artist should make the most money, sometimes money is like a total cage that you exist within because you are over rewarded for something that, totally prevents you from actually continuing your craft and that is just not right that's not good like my the reason i think the reason that michael jackson is now dead and wasn't alive to give us more music is because he he was oversaturated with rewards for what he was given and with because of those because of that power came obligations that he had to fulfill like his touring that he hated his um you know his health that he had to neglect his like he couldn't take five years off to focus on his mental health same thing with elvis like watching the the baz Luhrmann elvis movie really got me thinking about that as a process where like elvis was an artist and then he became an entity and that is not greatness that is like the murder of art how do you judge something artistically if we're not judging it commercially I think you have to have the courage to have your own taste. 
I think that that's because all all commercial success is is like a mimetic signal. It's like if somebody has commercial success, they have a lot of followers. If they have a lot of recognition, that means that they're safe to like. And I don't think that that is a very resonant way to live. And obviously I'm different because I'm an artist and I spend a lot of time thinking about this, thinking about what I like. But I think there's something that everyone can learn from that. Where like there are, if you just make your life devoid of songs that you like because other people like, you will discover new songs that actually speak to your experience. And that is an amazing feeling. And if you choose to identify with an aspect of your experience that is just like other people, you'll never really scratch the surface of what your experience is truly like. And that's a really unfortunate thing because um, if you have a very individual and personal experience that comes from a very individual wrestle with what it means to be alive and what it means to be alive is part. Like if you're not living a hard life, you're not living um, because you're not facing death, you're not acknowledging loss, you're not acknowledging rejection, you're just living in a space where you're living in this like liminal space where like all those things you kind of like perform as if you're acknowledging them, but you never truly acknowledge them. Like if you're at your grandma's funeral, you're like, you're like not thinking necessarily about your grandma meant to you. You're just like, I need to bring flowers and wear black, you know, like. I think there are people who exist on that wavelength. And I think that, that is like a very unfull way to resonate. It doesn't hurt as much, but part of it is the hurt. And then when you find music that really resonates with that hurt, then you can, that's when you really find fulfillment in art, in my opinion. And so discovering that is just a matter of like allowing your ear to be open and just like resonating. And that can come from great artists that are like super successful that you just like, maybe you realize why this song was so damn successful. Is because like it came out of nowhere and just disrupted the industry and just like it wasn't just like a plug it was a absolute knockout hit like i felt that way when i kind of revisited simon and garfunkel stuff because i was just like man like these songs are fire like they're so well constructed they're like masterly crafted but then on top of that clearly come from a play like bridge over troubled water like i was just like kind of finding new songs that i wanted to cover because I, I cover songs to study them and I, I came up with a version of that. And while I was singing, I was like, God damn. Like, wh whatever love for somebody else came from the song was like felt so deeply by by the dudes who wrote these songs. Like, so cool, you know? What do you think makes the music that stands the test of time? I have my own ideas for the art in general. Start with your idea. What's your idea? I think for me, it has to not... It has to be different from the current meta, from the current like mimesis, the mimetic mm -hmm. desire. Like this is what's working, so everyone wants. Yeah, I think you have to be able to give something people don't expect. I think that's part of it. I think that music that's just done because it's popular right now will be forgotten, and it has to have an impact at the moment. I think it has to be broad enough that it can be that everyone can enjoy it. As not not broad enough that everyone can enjoy it, but I think it still has to be resonant in the future. Agreed. Like it can't be written just about the moment. Totally, for the most part. I think just to add to that, I think at least the artist has to continue their bout of relevance. Like they have to continue to like make, like maybe they make some really strongly momentarily relevant stuff and then other universally relevant stuff. Yeah. I spent a couple months like studying Queen and I look at their discography as an example of this. Because yeah. it's like, I think it was seven albums in a row where to this day, 500 to 2 billion streams on an individual song. Yeah. On seven albums in a row. Crazy. 
And like to put that into context, Drake has a four album run. Yeah. In his career. Exactly. Five in his career, four in a row. Queen has seven in a row. Yeah. And I was like, why, why do these, why are these still relevant? Why do people keep playing them? And part of it is because it's not just the same album over and over again. Like it's so timeless because you listen to their first album, I guess technically their third album to their sixth, seventh album. And like the core tenants are there. Like I, just a way I describe it, it's like the bricks they used to build the house mm-hmm. are there and they're the same, mm-hmm. but they build the house differently every time. Right. And so it's like Freddie's vocals are there, Brian's guitar, Roger's high harmonies, but they will use them differently. Mm-hmm. And part of that is the fact that there was four guys writing music. So they had the different perspectives and tastes all kind of blending into one. Right. But the fact that they just didn't keep doing the same thing over and over again, that they continued to push and try to find new ways to use their gifts that I think is part of the reason they're able to resonate. But at the same time, they didn't choose to change the medium. Where explain like like go they, from music to movies? No, well maybe that, but also like go from uh, like their kind of generic um, expertise. Mm. Like like as you said, Brian May's guitar playing. Like Brian May didn't start playing keyboard. Exactly. You know. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't all start mixing it up. Exactly. Um, which is part of it is like in order to stand the test of time, you have to do something a little bit different. You yeah. have to step, and it's not stepping completely to the outside. Dude, mm-hmm. I think if you go too far from what's accepted, it gets rejected. Yeah, and so you have to find the middle ground. Totally, because you have to give something people don't expect in a context that they're familiar with. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I totally agree, and I think that that comes from the fact, like, like especially just touching on what you said before about making something that goes against kind of like the mimetic grain, so to speak. I think that there are certain people who are mimetic and there are certain people who are anti-mimetic. And that kind of duality that exists within society, that's totally true. Because once something is mimetic, people can just focus on it forever. Yeah, the, yeah. the whole point is that like something will be a huge song until something is like is like disruptive enough to disrupt that. And I think what happens with that is that when you have a culture that is kind of like a counterculture and that counterculture has yet to be adopted by the people who are kind of pro-mimetic, who are kind of like just looking to see what other people are liking, um, then that starts to become the, when that then becomes the mimetic thing, it both kills the genre, like it kills the thing because it's no longer can be new because anything that steps outside of it is just going to be like lambasted by other people because now they're paying attention to it. Um, but at the same time, I think that you can get away with a lot, like as you said, by just focusing on what you're good at and using that as your exploratory mechanism. Like I have this idea um, of craft that I wrote an essay about, and that idea kind of uses the definition of craft as like a little bit of a universal word to define a bunch of different things that are just like involved in like a life's work. And one of them is a vessel. So it's kind of like saying that if you're really good at walking and you practice walking your whole life, don't start walking on your hands in order to explore just for the hell of it. Because no one's going to be impressed. Like, and using the most basic and and most basic and easy to understand tools to learn how to get your point across is probably the most effective thing that you can do because you just learn it and it becomes like second nature to you. Like that's why I play guitar and write songs on my guitar. Sometimes I write songs on the piano, but like most of the time it's guitar because piano and guitar are like, they were the things that I started with. They're my feet. 
they're like my foundation. They they're the bricks that I used to build my houses in the same way that you were saying. And it's a brilliant way that you put it because they are using their feet, which is like Brian May's guitar playing, Freddie's vocals, Roger's high harmonies, to walk and explore new places. But fundamentally speaking, they're still traveling using the same vessel. It's not like they're switching it up and trying to upgrade their vessel to like what's new and current, you know? Like, I, I except I, I think I remember that Freddie Mercury wrote some like, wrote and produced after the dissolution of Queen or the early dissolution of Queen, like some independent kind of more electronic records that just completely flopped. They tried to do like a, and I feel like I come across as like a crazy Queen fan, but it's like I literally just spent like two months. No, you've been studying. Been, it's great. Yeah, yeah studying's good. Is It was, they put it, it was that 1982 was their Hot Space record. Mm -hmm which was more of like a dance album. Yeah. Because that was just, that was the closest where they started to be mimetic mm -hmm. and follow what everyone else was doing what was popular at the moment. Totally. And that tanked them. Did they have successes after that? Yes. That's really cool. Because mm -hmm. that, that shows that they learned from their exploration outside of the, they, they like meta explored. They like explored into the mimetic territory and then they were like, okay, I guess this ain't the thing. And they're like back to the races. yeah yeah and I think like I don't I definitely think that was like after the peak yeah but there was still that was pre Live Aid yeah Live Aid was eighty five right and so I think the works or the game I always get those confused but I think one of those came after eighty right. four cool I mean there's some big songs on that uh, but still even on the album that didn't work they got the um, under pressure but on that album right so it's like even though the album itself was like you go look and like it's like the lowest amount of streams ever for Queens like one million two million four million. 1.4 billion. It's yeah. just like it's just like that one song. Works. Totally, totally, totally. Um, but we were talking about there's another point I was going to make when it came to oh you're talking about with queens like their feet right really? like they were using that's where they walk and they were exploring new areas mm -hmm. and I like how it's like explore new areas because when I was talking to Peter Freestone who was Freddie's assistant mm -hmm. the way he kind of like put it to me or at least like how like resonated with me was like for them it wasn't a thought of what can we do differently mm -hmm. how do we make something new mm -hmm. it was. It was like the inversion of that question. And it was, this is what we already did. How do we make sure we don't do that again? Right. And so it's not trying to actively do something different. Yeah. It's just trying to not do the same. You're thing. just creating a small limitation and then everything else is, because saying that you're going to create something different just creates like a relevance nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that in my new stuff. Yeah. That's great. There we go. That's awesome. I'm going to make sure that I don't write, if I'm trying to pick a song, I'm going to make sure I didn't already write that song or I've already released that song. That's a great idea, man. It's been a very fruitful interview for me because like, I feel like you've asked some very interesting questions that have allowed me to like really tap into and organize some thoughts that I've, I've kind of been brewing for a while. It's kind of the right time. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's like the, one of the greatest compliments you can get as an interview. Awesome. So thank you. Yeah, of course. How do you, I have a few more questions I'll ask you, not take up too much of your time. Oh, dude, it's your time. <laughs> like literally I could be here for hours. Like this is literally my favorite thing to do. Right. Yeah. How do you think about leveraging I know that might be a new constraint you're going to employ, but like, how do you think about constraints in the creative process? I think about making it as simple as I can, like making sure that there's as little resistance to sitting down and doing things I can. So as few things as I can just set up, as few things as I have to set up, the better. So like, for instance, we're in my studio right now. Most of the time, my studio is being used by my roommate, Cam, who produces and he teaches and he practices piano. And this is a great place for him to practice his keyboard. And so I kind of just use my living room and my guitar upstairs 
which honestly would require a lot less space. Like I could do that in like a one bedroom apartment, but I'm getting a good deal in this place. So like I use this space for my own purposes, for practicing, for getting ideas down when I want to, for jamming with Cam or listening to music, bringing people down here to listen to music. Um, and so for me, it's like, I don't idealize the idea of like being in a studio and writing. It's like, I only would if I owned that studio and I, it was like so accessible to me. But that would take such a process of setting it up and would be so costly that's just not accessible to me right now. So to me, the limitations are just like, what is most available to me most of the time? It's kind of like, like I wouldn't go to a gym just because it was really nice. If it was really far away from me, it, it like I work out in my backyard because I can do that with no problem at any time. And to me, that's like part of the creative process of just like executing it's like the creative process is really me just like planting the seed of the process that makes the thing work. And to me, this is just where I'm at right now. I can change my situation, but everything in my life right now is working in great harmony to like allow me to produce great music, perform a lot, uh, take care of myself, uh, get the right amount of rest, relaxation, self-care, nutrition, all the things that I need. And I think that's going to produce work that is that like outpaces close to the sun by like a lot. And that is, to me, the key because Close to the Sun was actually produced in such a way that was pretty unbounded, um, a bunch of different kinds of processes, all of which I'm going to integrate in different ways to make more cohesive projects, but definitely was an experiment in like, where are my feet? What is my foot? Like, where can I kind of make things work and make things happen. I discovered a lot of great new things that is that are going to come out in a lot of projects, but people don't want me to constantly explore what my great mediums are. Because the same thing with Queen, it's like Queen had a bunch of things that they're really good at, but they didn't incorporate all of those things within the context of their albums because they knew that it wouldn't necessarily work. Like um, Freddie didn't do, he had great stage banter, you know, like in a really great way of like interacting with the audience, but he didn't try to integrate that with the record because they knew it wouldn't work. I'm just guessing. Mm -hmm. I, I've honestly never listened to their full anthology, yeah. but like, but like that is like from what I've heard, which is a lot because I love Queen, um, and their masters and amazing. Their live performances are way different than their records, and it's the same for me. Where like I'm discovering where it is that like I do songs that are live off the floor with my band, where I do songs that are like, you know, I did my last song on the album was recorded on my back stoop, because it just was the vibe, but like. That's probably not going to be necessarily the way that I do every album. Like hopefully every album will have like a little bit more cohesion insofar as how it is that I create them, but maybe not. I have no idea. So yeah. I do love that song, GTC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just love the video as well. Like the vibe, it comes through in the song, but it also is captured visually. Like Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like I just love it. And it's just, an, it's just, a, it's so simple. It's just a phone camera. Like literally just sitting there. Just like it took me like an hour to edit. Like it was just fun to make. Like it kind of harkens back to like Wolfbeck videos that I would watch when I was like, I don't know, 20. And just like discovering that like sense of just like people making something that's really fun and not worrying about the production value. And like, it's not serious. It's like, it's playful, but the art is real. Mm. I love that. Playful, but the art is real. Yeah. And that's where you, you can feel like it feels effortless. Like it doesn't feel like it's, it doesn't feel like you're in the middle of a huge production. Um, but the beauty isn't sacrificed. Like it feels like a fun font that isn't comic sense. Like, it's not trying to be silly. It just like it is just kind of hand drawn and sketched out, but it works. 
for what it's trying to deliver. And I think that that's the, like, that's what I love about great records that were produced like a long time ago is that they didn't have the constraint where they could be super perfectionistic about like, because like every take is expensive. Right. So it's like, you have to, in some sense, get it right the first time when it's right. So you have to rehearse it and then get it right. And that's just how we did that song. It was like, we probably did like seven takes. We chose the last one and I only did one take on vocals and that was it. So you had a gig to go to or something, right? Yeah. I had to leave literally five minutes after I recorded the vocal take and I was late for the gig. It was, was fucking great. It's so fun. I wouldn't try to recreate that, but like that was a fun constraint to add to it because I, I like we had a time limit. So we had to get it done. It was kind of cold outside. Like it was fun. Yeah. I want to come back to frameworks, taking the pin out of the thing that I, that I brought up, mentioned a while ago. What a memory. Yeah. You mentioned how the album was like really unbounded and fun. Yeah. But you also talked about really like almost like an ideal perspective, like potentially get to a place where you have a framework that allows you to create a song a day again or create a demo a day or something. Yeah. Like and with it's fun. Yeah. How do you create a framework that is one, fun, and two, allows you to kind of to our previous conversation, create something new? Because when you, I think of frameworks, I think of like, I start here, then this, then this, and this, where it can almost feel like the formula feels formulaic, like mm -hmm. all the music are just sound the same. How do you think of creating that formula while also creating a unique perspective with your music? I think it's about like trusting my intuition because my intuition will both tell me what works and what. Um, I need to explore. I think if I try to cement it too much, it always turns out in me just like writing a big plan that I never follow. So it's more about me exploring still, but realizing like what is a tool and what is uh, what is a tool that I can incorporate and what's just something that I need to pass by and observe and how quickly I need to be moving through that space. So it's like if I'm... If I'm trying to keep things fresh, but also have like a clear framework using like physical space, it's a really great limitation because like physical space creates a way in which I can't explore too much outside of what I'm doing. Also creating like a constraint of like, it can't take me too much time to set something up. Like yesterday I went and today I was working with an Ableton project that just has a bunch of drum breaks that I can just like press play on. And that to me is just like, it created a, creates a framework that makes it really easy to just explore. It's just like a sandbox, you know, but like a sandbox is not the same as like an obstacle course where like you could treat an obstacle course like it was a playground, but it's meant to be followed linearly. Right. And if you use it the way it's meant to be used, then it becomes a linear framework. But if you use it in a way that's playful, like you just start swinging on the stuff and you start climbing over the things then it becomes a playground. And for me, it's like, I want to make sure that I'm not creating an obstacle course for myself, except when it comes to actually taking the seeds that I create to the finish line. So when I create the seed, take the seeds to the finish line, kind of want to take them all around the same time, see what each individual's needs are and see how it is that I can kind of do it in the same way all in one kit. Because that's kind of how close to the sun happened, except from the beginning, it was like green eyes, I recorded the drums left before with Move On. We used a drum break, but I still recorded some stuff um, uh, live in a room. Uh, some ways I was acting as a producer. In other ways, I was acting as a front man and my engineer was acting as a producer. And so creating more alignment between those things creates a better, more cohesive project. And that's what I want to aim for because what I love about Close to the Sun is that there's, it explores, it's like a preview for everything that's going to come with Google. It's like, it's like, I'm going to make, 
stuff that's very performance heavy. I'm going to make stuff that's very produced and and takes a lot of care in like what the individual details are. I'm going to do stuff that um, experiments with different tastes in songwriting, including things that have been done that I really that kind of harken back to things that I really like, um, all the way to like things that like express an emotion that I feel like the, like what the 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 seed for losing faith in this production was I wanted to make a beat that felt like you were like driving in a convertible on a really mild night down Malibu because I'd never been there before. I'd never done that. And I just had a way that I imagined that feeling. And that was the the feeling in the music. And to me, that was like um, a really fun impression to follow. But I didn't have the same kind of impression for everything else. So not everything turned out the same way or had the same kind of production or mix. And so because of that, I, I just want to make sure that the the framework that I use to complete things kind of makes them look like a package, you know? And to me, that happened enough with Close to the Sun that I'm proud enough to call it an album and I can show it to people as an album. But I would say it's it's not the opus, you know? Like, I adore it and I think it's great. Like, I don't know how deep people are going to get into this interview to actually hear this, but um, but the best is yet to come, you know? And so I think that comes from frameworks. It comes from creating something where you just plug it into the machine that you make and then that it just effortlessly poops out a cohesive, beautiful product. Do you think you'll ever get to a place where you acknowledge something as the opus and that the best has already come? Or as an artist, do you think you're always striving to do better than your previous work? I hope that as long as I live, I have the... I think like the most perfect artist that I can think of that had like a beautiful career is David Bowie because right before he died, he created one of the best albums that he's ever made. And that's beautiful because he was clearly still going for it. and still really cared for it, even though he was super sick. And to me, like he could kind of die with a sense of satisfaction that he'd gone just under the thing. But you know, part of me kind of wonders that if he's on his deathbed, if he was like still being like, ah, crap, I wish I could get the next one. So maybe at some point I'll just decide enough's enough you know like now's the time for me to start my uh like get my phd or like um or like get phd level knowledge in something and start talking about it or writing or i really want to write books like i'd love to write a book about the craft idea um i'd love to write a book about uh i'd love to write a book about kind of self-help from the perspective of evolutionary psychology i find that really interesting just, just generally speaking, like looking at humans as animals and understanding kind of in a game theoretical way how it is that our behavior affects our decisions and how that happens and exploring that in a really ethical and beautiful way. Um, but like, I don't know when I'll, I'll get to that, those kinds of creative works, like when I'll leave the idea of music behind, like it might just always be the case. So I really don't know. Like hopefully, you know, maybe in my late 30s, that would be awesome if I create the best thing that I've ever done. And it's like, it's like eight albums from now and I'm just like, yep, yeah, this is the final world tour and I'm done. And after that, it's over. I'm going to hang out with my family. I'm going to write. I'm going to like do the odd masterclass and, or maybe I'm going to act again. Like I loved acting. I don't know how the hell it's going to shake out, you know, like I've, I've plans, but I'm constantly making those plans five years in advance and then subsequently a year in advance. So I have no idea. Do you think about that with potentially just like hanging it up one day? Does that come into play when thinking about legacy at all? Because so knowing that there will be no more music tends to drive up listenership. 
And that uh, tends to come in the form when an artist passes away. Yeah. Um, like Peter Bogdanovich is a famous director from like the 70s. And he was asking an art curator how to get his dad to be more known as an artist because dad was a painter. And, uh, the curator was like, the best thing your dad can do is die. Is die. That's right. So not the advice he obviously wanted to hear. But is, I even think about it now in the context like, because typically you get that in the context of this artist passed away. Yeah. But right now the conversation is happening a lot with Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. who's publicly gone on the record many times. This is his final. Film. He said his limit. He said his. Film. Yeah, that's it. He said his limit. Yeah, yeah. his ten films, and he said he's had that number his entire career. Yeah. And so is that with you saying that you obviously it's just following your curiosity, you wanting to write or wanting to do a play, but is that also part of the thought of like creating this body of work and then being super proud of it and never getting to a place where you could dilute it. I think there are a lot of artists that I really respect that still tried beyond what became their opus. But it's just that they acknowledged their opus after all that was said and done. And they chose to take that as their like flagship. So that's what they tour. Like Stevie Wonder is a great example. Stevie Wonder released Songs of the Key in Life, I think in 73. And it's widely regarded as his best album. And he released like a, subsequent to that, he released a, uh, what do you call it? He released a like hip hoppy album. He made a soundtrack for the movie Jungle Fever, which was about a relationship between I think like a black man and a white woman, which is hilarious. Like, it's just like, I think it was like a black exploitation film, you know, like, like, and, and clearly he was just like having fun. Like he was just like doing his thing, you know, like he made a, he made a soundtrack for a, a, a movie that like a psychedelic movie about plants called the secret life of the plants. That's like weird and crazy. And he also released like a bunch of pop songs, including like a recent record that, that he did with uh, a recent uh, single that he did with Elton John, like not, not something that I like to listen to, you know, like, but like, I think it's beautiful that he still have fun with it. You know, and, and that playful energy means that that lifelong desire to play and just be in love with music is something that transcends the artistic legacy and kind of like what goes into what make what makes a great artist. I think foundationally is that desire to play and that thing that makes you smile and enjoy doing the thing. And as long as you're kind of in touch with that kind of inner child, um, it can seem really calculated from the outside. But I think fundamentally you kind of learn that they're just sort of sort of expressing an ongoing pattern in their life, which is that they love playing music. They love playing music in a certain way with certain kinds of people. And that uh, that just produces great stuff. You know, it's just the feet on which they walk. So, you know, it makes me question with Queen, um, what would have happened if Freddie didn't die? You know, like, would they have kept, would they, because they lost their feet because of that. You know, they, they, they obviously can st- keep performing with, was it Lambert? Um, yeah, they've done it a couple of times. There's Adam Lambert. Yeah, 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 yeah. And obviously, like, people, like, they're amazing singers that sound amazing, but, like, they're not the same creative force. So it's like... No, and they haven't put out records with any, like... Exactly. They're just performing. Touring, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're just, they're just you know, they're just acting out their legacy, mm-hmm. really. And I think that that is what it comes down to. Because, like, with Stevie Wonder, he, oh, he when he does his, his touring, it's, I think the last tour he did was the Songs of the Key of Life tour. Which is like not his most recent work. So I think for me, it's like, I'll probably just keep enjoying playing music, but my life might change. I really don't know. Nor do I, I can't say like, I'm going to make 10 albums because I don't want to make, 
it might be a fun challenge because it might mean that I have to like really reevaluate the process and like totally sacrifice some things in my life. But at the same time, I don't find that particular kind of goal that inspiring. I'm really happy with my life. So I just want to be happy with my life and keep making great music. And I think the idea, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because <laughs> I think that the idea of legacy is almost like a fool's errand. Totally. Because like not only can you, it's, other people's perception of you after you die. Mm-hmm. So one is other people's perception, so you can't actually control it. Totally. And two, you won't even be around to experience. It. Exactly. So it's like creating for the legacy is something that's interesting. And like I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I think it's the idea is it to be remembered. It's to create, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, where it's like a comedian no one knows, but they influence this comedian. Yeah. It's like you, to be the catalyst that creates a ripple effect across it. Exactly. Where it's like, you don't remember me, but I said something that influenced this person who became famous, who influenced the next generation. Exactly. Like that just continued. And those people are great through these other great people. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think that power and legacy is a fool's errand for people who have yet to confront the reality of death. You know what I mean? No, I don't explain. So it's like, when you care about your legacy and the kind of power that you hold, I think it's kind of like you're making statues in your own honor to try to achieve immortality through the eyes of other people as if you're going to be conscious of that. And I think that that is a genuine misunderstanding of what it means to die mm-hmm. and how scary that is. And so when I meet people who like care about their legacy and care about what people are going to think about them after they're dead, I'm like, I'm like, you don't acknowledge the fact. Like, it's too scary for you to acknowledge the fact, which speaks to the inner child too, because that like, as a child, you're like, that's what you're... I remember when I was a kid, like a huge deal when I was a kid, because I was like playing a little puzzle and my grandpa was really sick and he was dealing with a lot of stuff. He might've just died actually. And I was like five and I was playing with a little puzzle, like one of those little physical puzzles where you have to take two things apart. And my dad came into the door and he was just watching me. And I looked up at him and I was like, I was like, am I going to die? And I just, and he was like, he, he was just like, yes, you're going to die. And and I was just like, like, I'm going to not be, he, and I was like, you're going to die. You're not going to, like, this is happening. This is the way it's happening. And so I just cried on his lap for like a while. and was just like totally distraught and I had to go to bed. Just was just like exhausted by the idea. But that was like such an impactful moment in my life that I really remember in its full like emotional intensity because of the fact that, you know, I was, because I had like lived with my grandpa and because like I really had watched him deteriorate and because of the way that I saw my mom was grieving, like none of it was hidden from me. I was able to really, exp- and then my subsequently when I was like 18, 19, my grandma died in my house of lung cancer. So I became very acquainted with death just as a concept which I think kind of contributes to my opinion on legacy and how it is that I want to live my life because um, I just think that people who care about that kind of thing have not been introduced to the fact that they're just not going to be conscious and there. They're just going to be, yeah, they're going to be in the hearts of other people, but it's actually more important that they're remembered as like their relationships with other people and not the the greater legacy. Because like I think about how it is that my grandpa had an impact on me much more than I think about how mm-hmm. Prince had an impact on me, you know? Um, and for some people that might be different, but that's kind of, I think that's a better reality um, to, to, to associate with because you, you know, you should care about the people you love more than you should care about just like 
the world, you know. And it's not like to Freddie Mercury doesn't doesn't resurrect it when you listen to a Queen song. No, exactly. Yeah, he's not he's not there being like, oh, whoa, you're listening to my music. <laughs> That'd be funny. Yeah. But like the uh, and I think that there's something beautiful to like the generosity that somebody who's creative who cares to put their music on the world and impact people in a great way and does so beyond the commercial benefit of that. I think that's wonderful. It's something that I strive for. Uh, but it's it's really because it feels really good to give some because I I think there's some reward for something. I, I just think it's like it feels really good to kind of sometimes be in touch with like I had I lunch with a fan yesterday with a friend who who was who started as a fan and he you know he was just telling me about the impact that my music had had in his life and I didn't view that as a reward I just viewed that as like me being like okay this process whatever this big process that I'm undergoing right now it's working it's like this is what I wanted so. It's great. Like I'm, I am currently both hungry and satisfied, which is like a great thing. Like I'm, I'm satisfied in terms of like what my art has done and I'm hungry for what I can explore, which is like exactly where I think that an artist wants to be. And what is the vision? Where do you want it all to go? Like what is the process you're trusting? Um, that if I, if I'm as myself as I can be through this medium, that I'm expressing, that it, I'm as authentic as I can be, obviously in a curated way that has a framework and a process, uh, that it will take me beautiful places to meet really beautiful people who will love and accept me and I will do the same for that. Because th there's nothing that feels better than that. Like there's nothing that feels better. Like obviously being loved and, loved and accepted feels great, but nothing feels better than being loved and accepted by people who, who you love and accept. So I think that that's what it's done for me is like it's introduced me to, to it's deepened my relationship with my brother because my brother plays music with me. Um, it's deepened my relationship with my both my parents. It's both my parents are musicians. It's kind of redeemed both my parents because both my parents kind of had to put their creative uh, aims on hold in order to take care of me. Um, so I kind of play music in some sense in gratitude to both my parents because it's not because I care about their legacy in terms of other people, but because they can watch me flourish in a way that they really re relevantly gave me the lessons and, and planted the seeds and watched them grow. It wasn't that I was in defiance of them. It's that I, I really honored them. And um, same thing goes for like my friends who, who have mentored me and have made an impact on me, you know, like, so for me, it's that I want to keep doing that. Like I want to, I really want to meet my, the people who were my heroes and you know, go through the hilarious process of humanizing them. And it won't happen with all of them. Like some of them I will never meet and some of them I will try to meet and won't and others of them that will just continue to be a myth in my head and others of them, you know, maybe I'll meet them, we'll like become friends and then we'll have like a fall account. <laughs> you know, like imagine that. <laughs> so the part of that is just like, just like ascending to this level of being in the space, realizing that it's just the same as every other space. Like what? Like uh, uh, you've been to Europe, I assume. Like where have you been? Like what great cities? Yes, technically England's not Europe, but it is. It isn't. But I've been to London. Lon London, Leeds, like six times. Yeah. I've been to France, Monaco, and Spain for three hours. So you've been to Paris, yeah. and you know you're in Paris. And you're like, wow, this is Paris. And then you know, like you need to go pee, and they're just like, oh shit, I'm just like, like like it was kind of better to imagine Paris in a funny way because now you're just 
in Paris. Like it's exciting and you're exploring different things and you're learning different things about the way it is, but it kind of, it, it just kind of becomes real. It goes from magical and imaginary to like, to like real. And there's something that is amazing about that and you can preserve the magic of it. But I kind of feel the same about, about Toronto where like when I first came to Toronto, everything was new and amazing. Now it's just, I know how to get from A to B's, you know, I, I know, I know the streets, I know how to navigate and it's just home now, which is a crazy feeling. Cause like it used to be far off magical place where I could do things. And now it's just like, now it's beautiful and magical, but it's just feet are on the ground now. You know, I'm not, I'm not in the sky anymore. Um, and so for that reason, I think it's the same thing um, when it comes to where it is that you want to get to in your career. Like when you meet the greats that you, that you imagine are really great. It's like, they are just people like they're, they're going to get hungry and, you know, but when you imagine them, you imagine them as like something that is like greater than that. And there's something that's beautiful about that process. And there's, yeah, and that's the process of learning to go. You'll always acclimatize to your surroundings. Exactly. You know, like I worked in sports for a while. And it's like, it's cool when you're on the sideline during a football game. Yeah. And like all the players are there and you're in the middle and like, this is sick. On the sidelines, obviously not in the middle of the fucking field. But like, totally. eventually it's like, oh, fuck another game. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Like eventually you just... That just happens. Yeah. And imagine you're like a publicist for like a great artist and you're just like, oh man, like, like this great artist does this annoying thing where they like, like chew gum really loud or something. Like, <laughs> you're just like, when I'm being annoyed by. <laughs> what do you think about kind of with this idea of wanting to meet your, meet your heroes? Mm -hmm. Part of that is becoming famous. Obviously, like, pretend like part of the process could be becoming famous. And I don't think you're one of these people, but I think there is. We're in a place right now where people would rather become famous than actually become good at the craft. Mm -hmm. Is that a bad thing? Is that a problem? Is that concerning? I mean, it's a problem for them because I think that's a, an entirely unenriching life and being famous is like, it sounds boring and stressful at the same time because it sounds boring because every interaction you have is probably the same where like people are unreasonably excited to see you and you know they're unreasonably excited to see you because they, you know that they probably know nothing about you or they know too much about you. And it's, uh, what would I say, boring and stressful. And it's stressful for that reason too because like you can't go to public and like you, so for me, like I would rather be kind of niche successful enough that I can fill like big rooms, make a lot of money, feed the mouse that I need to feed, buy my mom a house, you know, do all those things that I want to do materially and then just be really artistically fulfilled. Because like even with when it comes to Philip Sace, is like because um, people who are eminent and big in the industry recognize him, and he can get those pieces of recognition and like run with that. That's fucking great, you know. Like, and then he also doesn't have the side. He can go to a grocery store and be there, and people won't recognize him. Awesome. That's a good place to be. No, go ahead. Yeah, well, like, that's just, like, how I feel generally when it comes to fame and skill is, like, I would rather be someone who just, like, made a modest living off of being amazing at what they do and didn't have to struggle. Um, maybe be a bit wealthy and just, like, well-connected and live a life that was mostly relaxed and mostly, like, like had the big hard moments. Like, your mom dies, you know, you get maybe get sick. But you deal, you can deal with them in a way that doesn't just absolutely ruin your life and make you stressful, stressed all the time. That I would, and and just be good at what I do. Then I would to be famous and long, like stop with the save you. Yeah, you want to hold on to your humanity. Yeah, and I like what you saw where you can go to the grocery store 
and no one recognizes you. But when you want that feeling of adoration and everyone knows you, there's a small pocket of people who you can get that from. 100%. And they exist everywhere. Like, that's what I love about, like, doing my residency or playing on the street, is that whenever I play in the street, people stop and listen. And it's just because I work really hard at being good at what I do. And I work really hard at, like, telling my story and making, like, giving something people can find relevant, whether they find me in, like, a like some restaurant I'm playing at. Like, so many things have happened. And it's just because I try to make the whole thing cohesive. It's not like I'm, like, I like, sometimes I just do wedding gigs. That's fine. You know, they pay a lot of money. But, like, if I'm playing in public and it's in front of people that aren't, like, paying me a lot of money, I'm Kubla. I'm doing a Kubla-adjacent thing. So when people see me, they're getting what they're hearing. They're they're like the covers that I play are relevant to my my songs. Like they check out my Spotify, it's gonna like align with the performance they just saw. And so because of that, it's like you can just get immediate momentary recognition. And so exactly like like if I want to go out and play a show, and then I can come home and just like feel that silence and be fine with that, and then just like go live my life, go to the grocery store go to Valley Village you know like, like just do whatever I want it's fun yeah yeah I want to talk a little bit more about the influence your parents have had yeah because I read Mendoza Cheyenne earlier mutual friend yeah 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 you wrote a piece about you yeah and in that piece too, it said how your parents were kind of on different sides of the, the artistic spectrum mm-hmm. where it's like your mom necessarily didn't have the commercial success but she kind of got to express her creativity and explore that to the fullest extent wherever she wanted to go mm-hmm. And your dad was kind of on the other side where he found the commercial success, but didn't necessarily get to explore his creativity as deeply as he might have wanted to. Yeah. What are the lessons you've learned kind of from your parents and having them having the perspectives on both sides of that creative spectrum? Totally. And and they're not totally black and white on either side of that spectrum. Like there, there's definite Venn diagram between them where like there are ways in which that my mom will, hasn't been able to fulfill her full creative extent. And there's ways in which, you know, my, my dad didn't, he wasn't like a, he wasn't like a, LA session musician like he, he played bass and mandolin in a, in a pretty eminent Celtic rock band in, in the 90s um, but because he was able to like tour the world and stuff like that there was like you know kind of a he, all, his own stuff was always kind of put on the back burner in a funny way and and that was kind of his own decision um, like he takes responsibility for that so I think what I learned from my parents is that both of them have a lot of character like both of them are, are big characters. They're very themselves. And they're both very smart. Like they're, they're both very eloquent. And, you know, I get my pretty annoying vocabulary from the both of them. Um, and take it a step beyond, honestly. Like, just because the combination of them is quite different from one another. And they're both great communicators and really love their kids, which is like, you know... I'm so lucky. Like they had an explosive divorce and it sucked, but at the end of the day, they did all the right things to make sure that I was like healthy and well motivated and uh, got educated and you know was provided for. And like, like I'm so happy with how it is that everything turned out. And so, what my parents really gave me creatively, I'd say, is that both of them, both of them just let me explore they didn't have any preconceived notions about how i should do it some of them sometimes they have preconceived notions about how i should execute or how i should be recognized like my mom sometimes she'll hear a song that i wrote and she was like 
if this were 40 years ago, that would have been number one on the radio. But now, you know, the greatness is diluted thing. You know, she's really on that as well. Um, sorry, mom, for mocking you. Uh, or my mom, like, hates streaming services. You know, she's like, they don't pay enough. And I constantly have to, like, talk about how we live in actually a very young industry and like the standard that was before accepted was only around for like 50 years. Like it was like such a small blip that like the record industry was around and that piece of technology was like, will be forgotten. Like people will forget that vinyl records were a thing in like 200 years. Um, or then maybe not 200, but 500 years from now, like it's just a blip. It's not like, it's not a staple like the wheel, you know? Um, whereas digitally recorded music is going to be a lot more prevalent because it, it just like is so much more useful and so much better getting the point across. Maybe not. Like I'm not a futurist predictor by any means, but like that is my sense of it. And so I just view the industry that we exist in as different. So I'd say, and it's not like my dad has a clear idea of it either. So neither of them can really provide any for anything for me nepotistically, which is a blessing because I, I, I'm never like, well, daddy set me up a meeting with an A&R at Universal. Like that never would happen um, or could never happen because he just doesn't have the connections. And that's perfect for me because it means I can just explore, continuously explore from a place of like being totally, maybe they gifted me with like a certain cynicism, which is actually kind of beneficial for me because now I look at people and their motivations and I'm like, what are you getting from this? Like, I see what I'm maybe getting from this, but like, like what are you like A&R for a label getting from this conversation like and what are you going to try to shoehorn into my life in us getting together like i'm not desperate for your interest or attention i'm very interested in what you want because if we don't align then this is going to work and it allows me to to actually get great relationships because of that cynicism protects me appropriately from the wrong things and maybe protects me from the right things as well but it works at least well enough that i can develop like really deep connections with people who are really good at what they do like my engineers, like my engineer Chris is so good and so good at encouraging me creatively and so good at like compounding on ideas that I have and accepting like all the twists and turns and we love hanging out. And that's the best. Like the best is when the people who I like to work with are also people I just love hanging out with and vice versa. And, you know, it's like my relationship with Cheyenne and the kind of collaboration that we had, him writing that article, came out of the fact that he just was observing me because he liked me and vice versa. We just liked each other. We like spending time around each other. He was curious and 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 me too. And he just has a, a method of expressing that that he wanted to experiment with, you know? And to me, that's the beauty of it, right? And so, yeah. So I'd say that's what I learned from my parents is like an appropriate cynicism, like how to get good and just how to explore, just be free. What's the best note your mom has given you after a show? She's given me a lot. She just has like a lot of rules that she like follows. Cause she, she, she got her degree in acting and she really took that seriously. Um, she's amazing. She had my older brother when she was like in first year of acting school and then like went through acting school, had like a, a career as an actor and then, uh, still does like, she still acts sometimes, but she's 65. Um, and she acted a lot in place when I was growing up and she, she just has a lot of rules. Like, you know, don't put your back to the audience, sing with your mouth open, make sure people can understand what you're saying when you're saying it. Um, to like, that song doesn't sound great. 
you know, just like she loves giving notes. Like she loves giving notes on like how my mixes sound. That's why I honestly don't tell her everything that's going on. Cause like sometimes it's just like a little much. <laughs> Oftentimes you hear that like people associate mental health struggles with making great art. Uh -huh. Do you believe that that's necessary? Do you have to go through things in order to be able to express deep feelings? Leaning into that sense of mental health issue as a vice and not dealing with it could really make not only bad art, but like damaging art because it makes art that kind of like self-aggrandizes struggle as a necessity in the process of making art. I think that 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 balance loses itself when people start doing that, when they like get addicted to the sauce. So they like feed their own mental health issues. I think the best art is made when you acknowledge the mental health issues and you you realize that there you do your best to work on them fundamentally your best to live a great life to love your life um and to try to be as good of a person as you can but i think as you in the process of doing that that's the only way you can actually acknowledge the problems that you have and that's where the real self-expression comes to my mind does that make sense yeah so like when I'm making music, I'm always trying to better myself and see the patterns of my relationship. Like I don't want to write another move on, you know, because I don't want to have another relationship that was like move on. It's kind of like the same thing as, as making something you've never made before. It's like, I don't want to make the same mistakes twice. Like I want to do as much work as I do. I want to do as much work as I can processing those mistakes so that I don't make them ever again. So they're not like a recurring pattern in my life. But sometimes I just fail. And the art comes from the failure, but I don't have to rely. I don't have to like feed the failure. I don't have to like have scarcity mentality and like save my failures. I want to get like, ideally I'm super happy, the happiest ever. And I'm just entirely uninspired and incapable of writing music. And then I hang up my hat. <laughs> you know? Like maybe that's the end, you know, that we're talking about. It's like, it's like maybe I'm just happy and I just go out to pasture and that's it. And all the, all my relationships are great. People know me as a great person and that's just it. But as it, as it stands, like I'm still making mistakes interpersonally. And that is a, that haunts me still when I make mistakes interpersonally, it still haunts me, but I do so boldly. And I do so in such a way that follows my, the things that I'm excited about and I authentically believe and that I think are good. It's like the reason that I'm doing this interview right now isn't because I think it's good for my career. It's because it's an opportunity to put myself in that uncomfortable position of having to express myself and express what I believe so that people can deepen their relationship with me if they so choose, because some people will not want to watch this. And that's great. And other people might just watch it as like a, and maybe it's just, it could be that I have knowledge to share. And if I don't take a chance, then I, I won't have any knowledge to share. And so... I, all I can do is try and I don't want to be associated as like I'm not trying to be someone who's knowledge to share I just think that I might be just because of the experiences that I have and the things that I've done at this point in my life so just observing that I can try it out and then you know when you edit this and this comes out I can watch it and I can be like actually that's great like when I listened to that um, uh, art film dance music podcast that I did I listened to the whole thing I was like I'm making sense. Like this makes sense from a creative perspective. Like I actually have something to contribute philosophically to the, the, the dialogue. Like 
like some people will definitely listen to it and be like, ah, this guy's talking out of his ass. But like, you know, there's people probably just projecting their own negative feelings. Like I'm doing so in such a way that I'm, I just genuinely want to give people something that they can live a more fulfilling life with. It's not about like my own sense of self-aggrandization or anything like that. Like I'm happy, but it's just fun to be asked really good, like to be in a privileged position where someone like you who really takes care asks you questions that bring up feelings that make you make that you haven't like confronted in such a way that you can actually play with them is a gift, you know? So that's why I do it. I think that's like the summary of everything you do. Yeah. Whether it be the answers you give in this interview, the essays you write, some of them make it to your website. Not all of them do. Yeah. Or the music you make. That's the objective of all. Yeah. I love that. Thanks, man. Of course. <laughs> and so we've kind of talked about legacy a little bit here, but like when it's all said and done, what is it you hope, like maybe it's not to be remembered, but like what is the idea? What is the, the thing you want to create a ripple effect across time? I want to reinvigorate people with faith. Like, I think that religions and like, I don't want to make, I don't want to be like, be like the world will believe in the Lord again. Like it, it's more like I want to, I want, I, 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 I think this, this philosophical idea that like believing in God is just believing that things will be good at all times. It's like, no matter what happens, you believe that things will be good. It's like, even if things are hard and bad, you don't lose yourself to despair. You like continue to act as if things are going to be good because that I think that's what keeps you level, you know. And I think that that is like the secret of of life in that sense is that like you overestimate your ability to be logical. And so my goal with my art and, and stuff like that is just to like help people to process who they are and what they do. And it's going to be people who are like me because they're just going to see a mirror, you know. And that's great. Like it's going to be limited, but those people are going to make an impact. And I want the the impact that they make is that they they don't like go in the world foolishly believing that the world's good, like things are going to be okay and like being delusional that they acknowledge when things are bad but they see the pattern in how like even things like death and and uh in spite of all the bad stuff that happens in the world that they can still focus on good that they can still focus on being a good person they can think about what's close to them and what they can actually affect like part of it is like a stoic philosophy, which I really identify with. Another part of it is like just embracing the discomfort of life and um, finding joy within that process. I think that's just like part of living. I, I just, I genuinely just like love and I'm fascinated by people. And so the ripple effect that I want to have is to share that enthusiasm and share that enthusiasm for being alive and share that enthusiasm for like analyzing your purpose and having a sense of spirituality and really embracing the experience of being a person. Cause I think it's like, it's not black and white and scientific. It's like, it's impressionistic, it's artistic, it's spiritual, it's magical. It's, it is logical and rational um, and empirical and data-driven as well. But like, you have to see where is what, you know, like, cause Sometimes you'll have very limiting beliefs about yourself in the world and you will be living in doom and gloom, you know, when the reality is that we are this thing that's here for what we're here for and life is beautiful and we're part of that process. And that's just what I believe. Uh, other people might disagree. I've, I've experienced that disagreement in very funny ways, you know, like it's very funny to like be open about the fact that like I want to have kids. Like I was talking about that with a friend last night after my show as I was like talking about how I've realized lately that like 
you know, I look at my mom and I'm like, I want to make my mom a grandmother of my, I want to just meet my kids. Cause I think that that's like what she did it for. She did this whole thing of making me and like making sure that I grew up and like was attractive enough to women and all these kinds of things because she wanted to meet the next iteration of that thing. And I want to offer her that. And then I was like, so like, I, I don't know, I'll have kids at some point. And then somebody overheard the conversation was like, don't do it, man. You got your whole life ahead of you. Like, we don't need more people in the world, blah, blah, blah. And when I, like, I approached that conversation with like, I'm not going to change your mind. You know, like, I'm not going to make you think that you should have kids. But I think it comes from a place where they kind of, have, they kind of have in some sense given up on good. Like, they think that things are bad. And I just foundationally don't think we will ever know enough to think that things are actually bad. Even if things totally crumble all around us, it's like, what can we actually control? And how much impact are we actually making with our individual decisions? And how can we actually truly minimize that impact? And how can we not make that as like an, a static decision where we're just like, this is the problem. We decided this was a problem 100 years ago. And so we still think it's the problem. It's like, maybe it's not the problem, you know, like, um, so I'm not part of those conversations. Like I'm not part of those conversations about, about how people feel about it, but I think I'm part of the conversation. I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm part of the conversation about what's actually happening, but I think I'm part of the conversation as far as how people feel about it. And so I think that actually matters a lot more because what's happening is just happening. Like if the ice caps are melting and we're going to be underwater in, in 10 years, what if, but like, why live in that space? Like, if you can't control it, why proselytize to people that they should feel bad? Why not proselytize to people that they should acknowledge their inner virtue and love themselves and love life and continue as if life will keep going? It's a brave thing to do, you know? So I think that's ultimately my goal, which maybe is like the most pretentious and unworldly goal in the world. Like maybe I should just aim to make noise, but. I don't think so. I think your goals should be big that you can actually achieve them in your lifetime. Yeah, true. And that's the thing. I think that's where the ripples come in is that like, I'm just trying to imbue people with a feeling, I'm trying to imbue people with a feeling that they can process the hard stuff and they can get to the meat of the issue, which is that like, there are moments where you realize that like, there is such thing as an ultimate good. And that thing is something that you can serve and that you can do things for and that you can love and cherish and protect and instill in other people as well. And it's like the best disease ever to like, look at the world and be like, wow, it's a beautiful day. It's raining. You know, like that's such a good feeling. It's not something that I'm like constantly living on. Like I struggle with it. I wrestle with that concept, but I know that it's the right place to be in. And I know that it's, it's, it's not the right place to like have like a toxic sense of positivity where you're like, where somebody's like, my mom's dying. And you're like, yeah, but like, you know, she's going to a better place. So like, you should feel good. It's like, that is not acknowledging it. Like feeling what is, what is to be felt is good. It's not about being happy. It's about aiming for peace and aiming for, for like tranquility and believing that you can create something that is good and be a good person. And so that, that's just what I hope for. And with this, this vision, this goal, this, as Simon Sinek called, to bring it back to Simon Sinek, he yeah. the infinite game. Yeah is whether it's music, whether it's podcasting, whether it's writing, whether it's acting, yeah, everything you do can contribute towards that goal. Totally. The flexibility into how you achieve it, you're not beholden to one specific medium, mm -hmm. but the vision will remain the same. Totally. And I'm just acknowledging what I'm good at. 
like me being in music didn't was not born out of me being like I dream of being a great musician. It's just I come from a musical family. It's just like it is the tool that was available to me. You know, I just took the shovel and started digging. It wasn't like I'm going to wait for a I'm going to try to get a degree in something and like I just took what was available to me, which I think is the best thing that anyone can do. Like if you come from a very academic family, you just observe what you are and you you observe how stressed you are trying to do a thing that you're not very good at. And then you go, okay, I'm actually good at this. And I surrender to that fact. That's how I feel about music. Is that like, you know, I tried acting. I thought about academia for a long time. Uh, like in grade 12, I really took school seriously. And I did like physics AP and lit AP and English AP and calculus AP. And I did Latin at the, at the at UVic, which is across the way, part, part of this like U-Start program. And I just acknowledged myself that I'm like, I'm like, I can do school, but it's stressful as a bitch. All my friends who are really good at school, that's what they have. And that's their gift. And it that was honestly not a thought. That was just a feeling that I could later rationalize. But me staying up really late practicing guitar because my parent, my mom let me and loved it was a gift. That's my gift. My gift was like being able to explore music in a way that blended my sense for how people kind of like think philosophically at the same time as feel. It's also a gift because it makes me like realize that like Stevie Wonder is a great philosopher, you know? Because the, what what is contained within his his words are like succinct, really well put things that people can phrase. Like, um, we get a song. Don't you worry about a thing. Uh, um, always reaching out in vain. Smile uh, on faces. Uh, the the refrain is just "Don't you worry about a thing. Don't you worry about a thing, Mama," because I'll be standing on the side to check it out. Uh, and then the refrain is, is, don't you worry about a thing? Don't you worry about a thing? Is it's just like, you know, it's like the Bob Marley thing. It's like, it's like, don't worry about a thing. Cause every little thing is going to be, it's like, what is music for? Except for imbuing in a terrified world in a world full of scary stuff, the things are going to be okay. And that feeling that you imbue in people allow people to thrive and flourish. And then you, you say about, um, like Steve Wonder wrote a song called they won't go when I go to like a feudal dirge. And it's like talking about losing his friends and it's like that is like such a it's so deep it's so beautiful and, and it, it really makes you feel it like if like if some philosopher wrote an essay about it it wouldn't hit nearly as hard but like maybe if somebody wrote a movie about it like i think about that same thing when i like watch a movie or a tv show that like makes me cry or like listen to music that i cry to or like laugh at or like feel a lot of joy in i can actually like interact with those questions a lot easier and so it just comes from a feeling fun foundationally and then yeah so yeah it's 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 all the mediums that that i'm crossing really allow me to deliver that message for sure and i'm i'm just grateful that i live in a place that encourages that like not not just toronto but just like where i'm at i think that's a good place to end it but i think this might be my longest podcast ever oh she's that's fine though. It was because it was going it was going so well that I wanted to keep it going. Sweet. Um I want to give you the floor before we wrap up here. Mm-hmm. I mean you got three cameras. I don't know if mine's still going. This one is still going. So if you want to look into this camera and tell the people where they can punch. Okay. Uh at Kubla on Instagram, K U B L A, and then Kublamusic.com. I don't know, check out my YouTube channel. We put some cool stuff up there sometimes. Um I don't know. Like anywhere, just K U B L A, Spotify, especially Spotify. That's uh, that's a good place to find my body of work because then 
you know, but if you like this kind of stuff, there's other interviews that I've done as well. So you can just look me up on YouTube, probably like Kubla interview, and then you'll find it. If you, if you got this far, you probably like it. Hopefully, hopefully you're not just like looking for ammunition to bring me down <laughs> or something. Awesome, Alex. Everything's linked in the show notes. Great. I appreciate your time. Yeah, of course, man. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, you too, dude. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks yeah. for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for being the first contemporary guest. Sweet. Um, the first guest under, I guess my kill's under 60, but like first guest under 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. sweet. Um, I appreciate it, dude. And uh, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm excited to actually take the time to sit down and edit this whole thing. Yeah, man. I, I hope it's like not an insanely arduous process. Sweet. Awesome, dude. Thank you so much for listening to the Jacob Kelly interview series. If you enjoyed this interview, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next one. And if you want even more from me, you can subscribe to my newsletter where I send out long read essays about what it means to do art well.